Okay, and uh, welcome to uh, another segment of Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and out in California, we've got Chris uh, Palomares, and fresh and sweaty from the gym in Massachusetts is James Lincoln. Howdy ho. He's been working out today, people. He's been working out. And our guest for this section is uh, Joe D'Elia, Protopower West, interesting company. Most of us have, uh, you know, built their uh, intermodal models. They've got re, uh, remotoring kits and so forth. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Want to hear about your company? Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I think we better jump right into this because we got 30 years of uh, stuff to talk about here. So I'll try to get through it as quick as I can. And anytime you guys have questions, you can just jump in and and we can. We anticipated it would be long, so I've ordered in pizza for everyone. Oh, great. What? Uh, I just want cheese on mine. <laughs> oh, crap. I got them all with pepperoni. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, to start off, it, just, just a quick little uh, little, quick little information about me to give you an idea of where kind of where I was going, where I'm coming from, and how this whole thing got started a little bit. Uh, first of all, I'm a model railroader, and I'm a prototype modeler. Uh, and also, I am a rail fan. So, if you can remember all those things, that has a those have a big factor in uh, a lot of what happened over the uh, over the 30 years. Uh, but the business started in 1979 with, and the main product line was repowered Atherton locomotives. And actually, um, from 79 to now, it's, this is our 35th anniversary. So we've been around for a couple of couple of years. Um, the first the offering. Uh, that the company came out with was the diesel. Basically, the we repowered the Athern complete Athern line of diesel locomotives with can motors and uh, brass flywheels. And the reason we used the Athern as the, the base platform is because it was the parts were readily available, and pretty much uh, even today, even uh, and back then, it, the the Atherin system is a pretty bulletproof system, and it's been o- improved over the years. But you really, when everything's said and done, you really can't beat it uh, for longevity and for uh, just being a tough, tough uh, product to uh, just run the pants off of it, and, and it, it holds up very well. So we thought that would be a great platform to to use to. Uh, Starting what I always what I've said over the years about the Atherin situation because people ask me well you know if Atherin was such a great product why did you why did you do something with it well what we always said we took a good product and we made it better uh, and in the early days people were not uh, that much performance minded but there was a growing uh, there started to be more of a growing need for people wanted something a little bit better so as we saw this come up. <clears throat> and we we thought, well, we'll take the can motor, which is uh, quite a bit of an upgrade from the standard motors, and we'll put brass flywheels on them to get that centrifugal force going to help you through bad spots of track and things like that. Uh, one of the first things we we did with the uh, the components is so many people in the, in the past had taken flywheels, and when they put them on the motors, they actually pressed them on with a with a press. Well, the problem with the can motors is the can motors had a very fine uh, shaft at like a two millimeter. So pushing and pulling on those shafts was not a really good idea. You could bend them real easy. <clears throat> so we came up with a system which was a little bit more expensive, 
of drilling and reaming the flywheel, and the way you applied the flywheel to the motor shaft was by slipping it on. It, was, it wasn't a press fit, it was a slip fit with a very tight tolerance. And then you would lock it down with a Loctite material uh, for shaft, for a shaft. And the nice thing about that system is that you could position the flywheel and you had time to position it. You could move it around until the Loctite went off. But the other nice thing about it is if for some reason you had to get the flywheel off, uh, basically you'd heat the flywheel up like a big lighter and you could basically pull the flywheels off and then reapply them with, uh, with the Loctite. So that, that, was, uh, that was a system that worked out very well. And originally what we did with the, uh, with the Athens chassis is we poured lead into them and then we milled the lead out uh, in a U-shaped uh, configuration to, so the can motor would sit in there and it would have alignment with the rest of the drive system. Uh, that was very time-consuming in the, in the beginning, and over the years I developed other methods of trying to make it less labor-intense but get the same situation of getting that extra weight in the frame. The first one was to, I made some fixtures where I could actually put the fixture in the frame and then I poured the lead from the, from the underside of the frame, which was kind of neat because then you pulled the fixture out and there the lead was shaped and ready to go. The only, the only other problem... With, with that system was that there was a lot of people out there who already had frames and they didn't want to buy a leaded chassis from us when they were building up their own uh, units because we sell all the components separately besides having a complete chassis. Um, so I thought, well, there's, maybe, but there, maybe there's a better way to do this. So basically what I did is I designed a, um, if you want to call it a cradle or a slug, that was the shape of the Athern, uh, inside of the Athern fuel tank and also had the U-shaped cradle effect to it to mount the motor, and we, we would cast those separately. So basically, you'd take that cradle and stick it into the chassis with uh, silicone, and then you'd mount the motor in there, and then that facilitated people didn't have to uh, buy a leaded chassis from me. Uh, they could use their own chassis and buy the cradles, and that's been very, very successful over the years. Um, one of the things when you we used to build up the chassis, uh, we used to go through somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 tune-up steps. So as you can tell, the us hand assembling these chassis was very labor-intense. Uh, so hence that's why I came up with making, coming up, come up with the cradle and making all the components available separately because there was a lot of people who said, well, I can do that, and they, they would go off and. Uh, and repower their locomotives themselves. Now, they wouldn't get the advantage of the tune-up steps, but over the years I'd worked with some uh, magazines, and there was an Athern, uh, one of the uh, magazines came out with a book on repowering Athern locomotives, which is now kind of old. I would like to do a new one, but, you know, time is a is another factor. Um, but a lot of these tune-up steps that I that we used on the building the chassis came from me tinkering with my own equipment and trying to get, to get it run run better. So there was a lot of time that I spent uh, tuning up my own stuff, and then consequently, when we got into business, we I would just I just brought it over into the uh, manufacturing end of it and into the product line that we made selling the chassis. Um, uh, let's see here. So, so Joe, uh, let me ask yeah. you this. Uh, do you find that your your sales are kind of about the same now for your repower products? Uh, I, I still think that there's probably even more of a, a need for repowering and tuning up for ready-to-run type locomotives, especially when 
you factor in the DCC end of things, so you, you tend to want to have motors uh, that are a little bit more efficient and a little more balanced and just smoother running out of the box. Has that helped your business or have things kind of remained the same or plateaued? What, how's that going on? Well, <clears throat> basically what has happened is because, again, and nothing, and so that really hasn't changed over the years, building the chassis has always been labor intense. Uh, so it's something that I didn't really want to continue doing uh, because it's just, if I spent more time on something, I had to charge more for it. Um, so getting to answering your question is there is actually uh, there is not a need so much for the complete running chassis although I do get requests for it but people are still repowering and like you said because of the DCC situation because having a good balanced or running and low current draw system is is more important actually today than it, than it has been before because of the DCC because the DCC is more sensitive uh, to a lot of things. So we 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 still sell a, a fair amount of uh, all the repowering components, the cradle weights, um, motors, flywheels. We we just came up with uh, uh, our hex drive flywheels. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the hex drive system we have now instead of the old ball and socket, which we still use, and I still still think is a good system. We made our own couplings. Basically, we cap copy the Athen couplings, uh, but we tightened up all the tolerance so there wasn't uh, uh, as much, there wasn't noise uh, that you used to get before. Uh, but I develop, I also just currently developed, along with the hex drive flywheels, I developed a uh, universal hex drive shaft uh, because the problem with it is that basically Athern has, I don't know how many different, uh, could be you know, 10, 15 different length hex drive shafts and for somebody to, uh, for us to sell a flywheel and then try to sell a bunch of different shafts because we don't know what they're going to do with it. I came up with the idea of making the hex drive shaft universal. So that means you can fit it to whatever locomotive uh, you happen to be working on. Um, but getting back to the point is, again, it is, uh, we're seeing, uh, still seeing a strong sales for all the repowering uh, components because people are, uh, Trying to get their stuff still to to run better, especially the older stuff. And even I, it's uh, kind of amazing to me. I still get a lot of I still get people calling and saying, uh, you know, I, I I don't like the Genesis motor. I want to put a better motor in it. Well, you know, I I've run a lot of blue box stuff, and that's a good basic motor. They've upgraded it over the years, but you know, with a little tune up, it's amazing what that standard blue box motor will do. Even in I run a lot of it on DCC. So you know, it's. It's what I always say. It's whatever spins your propeller. You know, do whatever you'd like. We'll, we'll make the components available for you. I don't try to push people into one thing or another because everybody's got their own idea of what they want and what they don't want. So, right. Yeah, the re repowering thing is still going. I think it's uh, still going strong. Well, uh, you know, part another component to it is um, maybe the blue box motor is considered a fine motor. Uh, but it's a little bit louder than, say, a can motor, and especially within DC sound or DCC sound, that that affects the sound quality if you have some motor noise over it. So I, I can see where people would want to take a can motor and upgrade one of their older locomotives or upgrade a ready-to-run locomotive and use the quieter can motor, including the, you know, do a sound installation or whatever. Um, yeah, but that, that's good to know. Uh, 
one thing I did just recently was I upgraded. I had the split axle gears on a lifelike GP9, and I was able to use the Atherin ones, and I just, you know, you have those components available too, and it's just really available to and, and easy to go acquire those those axle gears to do that operation to fix a, a lifelike GP or whatever else uh, might have a split axle gear. Right, right. Yeah, we... We have those. We have axle gears probably right now. Um, it's one of our better sellers, so there there must be a lot of split axles. And probably, I mean, unfortunately, what's going to happen in the future is that more are going to split because the unfortunately the way it was set up is. And you know, it's very hard um, just to let people know kind of a little bit on the inside what goes on with this stuff is. Uh, you're basically taking a metal axle and you're pressing it into a plastic tube for all per practical purposes with a gear on it. And the tolerances between the metal axle, the OD, that, dia the, uh, that outside diameter, and the ID, with the inside diameter plastic gear, um, there's where the problem arises. If, if the quality control is not being watched by the manufacturer, what you have is a situation of you pressing that metal axle into that plastic uh, gear, and if it's too tight, then it will go in and be fine, but then over a period of time, that plastic will split. Uh, and there is a little, bit, uh, there is a notch in the uh, in the end of the in the end of that plastic gear or axle, so to speak, or tube. And I think that's where the the problem starts because there's a square notch in there, and any place where there's a square area, and you're putting a lot of tension and pressure on it. Uh, that's the first place it goes. Uh, I, I, off the top of my head, uh, I'm not sure why they put that that square notch in there. And I'm not sure that the EBITDA Photo 2000 uh, uh, has one. Um, basically, they copied the Athern design of the power truck. Uh, I think they changed it now, but I'm not sure. But anyway, so so it's going to be a situation where it's going to be an ongoing problem. And okay, yeah, you buy the new gears and you replace them, and you're down the road. So. And how long that will last is anybody's guess. You know, yeah. I, it, it depends on the, it depends on the tolerance makeup. Um, you know, if it was up to me, and because and, and I, I like tinkering, and a lot of people do, is what I might even think about doing is uh, possibly if the if the fit feels a little bit tight, you know, I would think of even maybe if you could get the right size ream. Uh, drill is a little bit edgy to try to drill something and, and make it a little bit oversized, but. Is if you could find the right ream and ream that axle, that plastic axle out or plastic tube out, and get it to fit that metal axle, and then actually um, loctite it, uh, not loctite it, but uh, ACC it in there, and then you you wouldn't have that pressure. But right. for most people, that's a, for more people people that's a, too much monkey motion to go through. So yeah, so I would say replace the axle and you know run them and yeah, it, it was really truly a five minute operation yeah. to just pop off that that bottom cover and yeah. just pull the truck or pull the wheel out, pull off the axle gear, put on a new one and put them back in and I was off and running literally five minutes. So I guess my policy is kind of like I'll deal with it as it comes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You you can either do preventive or you can deal with it, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it type of a situation. Right. But you know, there's a uh, there's kind of a little bit of, of a good thing there. You know, if you have to get into your power, if you have to get into your truck, 
uh, your power truck, that's a good time to take a look at everything. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, is it over lubed? Is it under lubed? You know, does it have too much grease in it? Does it have not enough grease in it? Because there is, there is too much and not enough. Uh, and you can just look over everything. Are the rivets tight? Uh, is the electrical connections tight? Uh, are things, uh, uh, you know, how are things aligned? I, over the years, one of the things I developed in the early Athern, uh, truck when they first started riveting, uh, with the little brass rivets, they started riveting all the, components together when they got away from the original design which had the metal side frames with the bearings in it right is that uh one of the problems was when they would do the assembly um they would rivet these things together and then when the complete truck was together and you put it on the rail all four wheels would not touch the rail it would teeter back and forth because only two were touching so that was uh, that was kind of a pain in the butt. So anyways, I got playing around with it, and what I discovered is if you split the truck in two, there's there's depending on whether it's just three axle or four axle, there's posts that stick up out of the truck that the gears mount on. Well, at the end of that post, it, it steps down, it necks down, and what it, that does is it fits into the other side of the uh, the gearbox. But really. If you look at that situation, it doesn't need to be staked into the other side of the gearbox. Those posts are so strong, and you're not going to—you're not putting that much pressure on the gear where you're going to, you know, that you're going to break that post off with the gear that the gear rides on. So what I basically did was clip the ends of those posts off where they neck down, mm-hmm. and then reassembled the truck. And then now, what you basically have is an equalizing truck. Both you can take the the truck in your hands, and you can twist it back and forth. I mean, not a lot, but enough where any misalignment that there's been in the uh, assembly of the truck with the rivets and the side plates is now, uh, it has ability to move. So now when you put the truck back on the ra- on the rails, it's all four wheels are touching the rails. And I do that with the six axle also. And that's a, that's a trick that I've used for, geez, forever. And I even use it today sometimes if, if there's a truck that's bad enough. So right. that's, you know, that, the reason I bring that up is because that's, you know, why you got the truck apart, spend a little time and look in there and and see if those, uh, uh, if any of those problems arise. Another thing with the trucks is is the metal plate the that comes up out of the truck that's 90 degrees that has the hole in it for the bolster pivot. Uh, a lot of times you'll find that some of your locomotives will teeter back and forth. And the problem with that is that the alignment of those metal plates that comes up out of the truck and then does the 90 degree one is one tilted one way and one is tilted the other way they're not parallel they're not level and they have to be level with themselves and then they have to match the frame so if all that is in is correct then the 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 the, the, the locomotive won't teeter and won't teeter back and forth plus and a lot of the older locomotives that was an electrical path so you want as much surface touching each other as possible uh, the, the Locomotives today, are, they wire around that, which is a, a, a great upgrade uh, because that – my philosophy is anytime there is a uh, – you're trying to have an electrical path through through metal components that just touch each other, it's, it's a, that's a very poor – it's not a good system. So it, the, the better the, – the direct path from the rail up to the motor it, with the least amount of uh, metal touching components – uh, is the better way you want to go. I mean, theoretically, if you could wire, uh, uh, if you could go from the rail to the wheel <clears throat> and have a wipe run it and go straight up to the motor, that would be the ultimate situation. So, 
But anyways, it's it's getting closer now. There's a lot better uh, hookups from. Uh, they're eliminating a lot of they're li- limiting in a lot of those bolster uh, connections where you just have a metal and metal contact. So. Well, speaking of the bolster, uh, Joe, um, you were mentioning to me that you had a fix for one of the problems that have been occurring on. Well, people consider it a problem. I, I, it doesn't bother me too much. But I noticed that, like, on some of the SD40-2s, SD40T-2s, that the truck sort of slides a little bit in the bolster front, front and back, and you have a, a way to correct that with a drill. I think it, you call it like a bullseye or something. Uh, no, actually, what I think what you're talking about is... Um that at some point in time, <clears throat> Athern made a, de- a design change. Originally, the the truck used to have a metal plate in the truck with a with a, with an it's a 90 degree plate comes out of the truck that's riveted and it has a hole in it. And then there is a bolster runs across the frame with a pin that sticks down. And that was the conventional way that um, things were done. At some point, Athern when they upgraded the SD40-2, they they changed the frame. And they designed it so there wasn't that pin in there. They designed it so there was two semicircular shapes in the frame, and then the truck had a similar male-female, if you want to call it, design. And you still had the metal plate in there, but there wasn't a there wasn't a pin coming down from the from the bolster of the frame. And what you might be talking about is that they have gone back to a they changed the design a little bit. I'm not sure why, but they changed the design a little bit, and they've gone back to a pin now in, which is, which is interestingly enough, is on the truck. It's it's actually a clip that clips over the truck that keeps the truck side gearboxes together, and then there's this plastic pin that sticks up, and then there's a hole in the frame, so it's kind of reversed. Well, I think maybe what we might have been talking about, or, or what you might, this is the only thing that comes to mind, is the problem is you can't. Uh, since they've changed the design of the frame and the truck, if you have an older frame and you want to put, and you don't have the trucks or for some reason you need new trucks, you can only get those new trucks now which have the, the cap, plastic cap with the uh, plastic pin. So what, what you have to do is you have to go back into your old frame and you have to drill a hole in the bolster area. And then you can retrofit the newer truck back into the older frame. Now maybe that's what yeah, that, that I think that was it. Um, but that I, think, I, I think I was also thinking at that same time, like that could potentially fix that problem with uh, on some of those earlier ready to run. I, I think maybe four four years ago, five years ago, they came out. The, the trucks kind of slid forward and back. And you were mentioning you were going to put out a tool to make to drill a hole. Well, that so, was what I just explained. Yeah, you yeah. Basically... I mean, it, it could be as simple as probably just getting the the newer trucks and drilling the hole, and you know. Well, on the same line as the bullseye, I was thinking about coming up with a with a drill fixture that you just drop into the semicircular shape area of the of the older frame, and it would it would align. Where you can you drill right down through it and it'll drill that hole down through the frame because when I did the first one I did here by hand that hole comes very very close to the edge of the frame and if you're not careful you can you'll break out you know you'll split it out you'll break it out so 
again, using some kind of a, a, a fixture that that holds the drill as it's going through and centers it on that semicircular area is, is to me, is the way to go. I mean, somebody could make it at home or something, but I was thinking about maybe coming up with something like that. Um, any other questions? Well, um, uh, Joe, um, the um, of course, now, now if I can think of it, this probably is more appropriate at the beginning of the conversation. But now, the whole reason for you starting this process of repowering Athen locomotives wasn't when you were like the the power guy or the standards guy at a club and decided that there were there were issues with all these locomotives and if everything was going to run right you had to fix everything or something along those lines well yeah kind of um basically i'm glad you brought that up because somewhere in here i was going to so, mention it so so really i mean you did this for yourself i mean you started the whole process for yourself not so much to be a business but it kind of morphed into that yeah yeah kind of yeah so and the yeah, well this gets back to what I was just going to say. I would say for the biggest one, 90% of the things that we have come up with or maybe even 100% of the things that we have come with, come up with over the years has come from a need. I, I have seen – I saw a need for something. And obviously when I – in the beginning, I, I saw a need for myself that I want things to run better and operate better and so on and so forth. So then when we just when – we, when we started the business – Obviously, that just carried through, and and a lot of the things that that I was involved in, in in clubs, in my first clubs, and things like that, is where a lot of the early development of some of our major products got started because of again because of my involvement with the club, uh, or being involved with standards. I was in charge. We had very poor operating sessions, and we would always I would always hear the argument that the, the guys running their trains would be complaining they would be coming off the track, and they would be complaining that it was the track guys that had crummy track. And then we go. They go back and forth. No, it's your equipment. No, it's your track. So, the long and short of it is, I got tired of hearing at it, and I got tired of these crummy operating sessions. So I said, you know, what's the deal with the standards? Well, they didn't really have any. So, I went around to the other clubs, got the standards, boiled it down to some basic, real basic standards, you know, the couplers thing and heights and so on and so forth. And I said, well, you know, if you, and I wrote it all. I said, if you if you vote this in, then I'm I'm going to enforce it. Well, they didn't know what they were getting into when they when they, they signed that off, but because then because they found out down the road that now I was the SOB, you know. So uh, so then when when the equipment came in, I would check all the equipment when it came in, and I would look at it, and I would immediately turn around and say, "Take it back home," and you didn't check this, and they'd look at me, and then they take it back home. Anyways, one of the things I found while we're talking about this is one of the things I found. Um, well, an interesting little story about the about the and, and of course they 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 would always be like, "Well, what do you mean? I mean it's oh, not right." Of course, <laughs> you, you mean you you mean I can't use my locomotive today? No, you may not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, starting with the locomotives is we we had a situation in this first club where we had a balcony up above the layout, which was probably about ten feet or so up above the layout, and it was a great view of the whole layout. But you ran your trains from up there. So you weren't walking with them and you weren't next to them. So as and you ran other people's equipment. You didn't know unless you recognized it, you could be running anybody's equipment. So as I would bring my locomotives down, I would put them on and then we'd be we'd be in an operating session running, the guys would get my locomotives and they and they would notice 
this drastic difference between their locomotives and and mine, and they'd say, what the hell, what's 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 in that locomotive? And then that's how it, I said, well, it's got a can motor, and it's got flywheels in it, and, you know, and I kind of tuned it up. And so that's how that's how the thing kind of kind of uh, got going for people that didn't know anything about it because they could actually from 20 feet away or whatever or just the feel of running these locomotives they could tell the drastic difference between a stock one and something that had been tuned up and repowered uh, and then jumping over to the the standard situation is our hobby tote carrying and storage system, that was developed over a number of years because of me being in charge of standards. Because as the equipment came in and I was checking it, it, the way people brought their equipment in was just absolutely mind-boggling. It's scary what they do. Scary. Yes, it was actually scary. It was really scary. So what I found out is equipment didn't didn't get damaged at home and it didn't get damaged on the layout. It got damaged in transporting it back and forth. So consequently, that's when this, then that's when I started developing the, the carrying system, and that has been probably one of our best sellers for the 30 years. And actually, we're we're enjoying kind of almost a resurgence. And I think the reason is because there's so many, um, because we're in in the world of ready to run today, you know, and you you buy everything, you don't really build anything anymore. People are buying more equipment, uh, you know, than we all need. But it's not need; it's want. Um, no, that doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and we need a place to, well, people need a place to store it and they need and to transport. And, and I have been using, obviously using the system because I came up with it, but in the olden days when I used to go to a lot of shows, a lot of trade shows, uh, and flying was different and we didn't have uh, all the garbage that goes on today with checking stuff, I used to take my, my uh, hobby totes with me on the plane and just all kinds of different configurations of what people would do. And I remember I got off plane and we got a shuttle bus to the hotel and the guy went around to the back and before I could get back to him, he had taken my, my hobby tote box and he pulled it out of the back of the, of the van and he stood it up on end. Ooh. And I just had it because uh, <laughs> because it was all the models for RPM and, and our display. Oh, and, uh, oh. So I got, I, I didn't do anything. I just went up to the room and slowly unpacked everything and I mean, if as I remember, it was little or no damage, luckily. And I had I'd done a little bit more extra packing on them because they had to be, you know, where it was in the plane. But it, it just proved to me that the system uh, is a good system and it works. And one of the things is, because there's been other systems over the years, one of the systems that I was, uh, why I developed the system I did with this hobby tote system is that the, the equipment stands up on its wheels. It doesn't lay down on its side and... Being because of prototype modeling and the details and all that kind of stuff, like I figured, how how could you lay equipment down on its side and then squish it with foam? Uh, you know, it just. So, anyways, um, my, like I said, my system is it was developed for detailed models, transporting them back and forth and, and storing them. You know, getting back to what you'd said about there's a lot of stuff that has been developed uh, because of my involvement with the hobby and and being in, in uh, you know a hobbyist and a modeler and so on and so forth. Well, I'd say that makes you more finely tuned to to know what the other hobbyists need by being a modeler yourself, you know. Right, right. Well, that, you know, I couldn't, to me, uh, it made so much sense. And luckily I was, you know, a modeler and a rail fan and I, and I had all that, you know, 
under my belt kind of, and it, it seems like it, would have, it was a perfect situation. When I got into business, I was able to tap all that, and it, I wasn't just coming from theories and, well, I think this will work, or I think that will work, or I think we need. It came from cold, hard facts of, of things that were going on that I was experiencing. And one of the things I'd like to close on, the, at least on the um, power chassis and the repowering, I, I, I would like to say, uh, you know, over all the years, um, I think it's safe to say that we were, you know, we were pioneers in the area of repowering locomotives because as far as I know, we were the first ones that was, were ever repowering these things, um, you know, standard and making them available uh, with can motors. And uh, I think we were one of the early people that were uh, had used the can motors because, you know, 30 years ago, Jesus, I can't even remember back sometimes 30 years ago what was going on with everything. But uh, I think yeah. it was the, the, the hot... Uh, motor uh, I'd say back in the 80s it was uh the tan can motor came out <laughs> and that yeah, was well actually the tan can is a machine <laughs> you know yeah well the tan can is a machine motor yeah 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 exactly so, yeah, so but as I recall you were the only ones doing the the whole chassis yeah 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 yeah, I can honestly you know, you say could, that it was, it was you, know, you could go out and buy a repowered Athern chassis. There was nobody else that was doing that. You know? No, not, I mean, I remember that at the time I could never afford it. But, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, at, but I was, I was a lot younger, you know, newer in the hobby, and, you know, I'm just happy to be getting Atherns as it was. And uh, I just never could have, you know, I could afford a motor. I could afford this and that. I couldn't afford the whole thing at the time. Right. That's why I kind of remember that it was just you. You know, you could buy yeah. motors or you could buy your stuff. Right. And and that's, you know, and I knew that at the time. I, and even for me, um, you know, buying a complete chassis, you know, it was quite a bit of money. But, again, like I said, the, the, it was so labor-intense. Um, but that's the reason why I broke out all this stuff and made all the components separately because I realized that people couldn't afford to buy uh, you know, a whole chassis, and that's why I developed over the years. I got to the point where now we have this cradle weight, which I think a lot of people have, have uh, you know, enjoyed and had a good time with it because they've been able, they were able to do it, uh, buy the components and do it themselves, and and then they could do it to whatever level they want. You know, I've talked to so many people, and and they ask me questions, but then they end up telling me how they did it, which is fine. So uh, that's why I, I learned early on that everybody's got their own idiosyncrasies and ways of doing things and I never try to push people one way or the other I make suggestions to them and then I let them matter of fact one of the one of the things I used to tell people back in the early days is they'd ask me because they want to buy a chassis or they'd read about it or heard about it but they've never experienced it so I said well here's what I would suggest to the customer I said buy one of our chassis get it home run it see how it performs for you and then the next time you want to repower something Buy the components and do it yourself. And I'd say to them, if yours runs as good as mine, you don't need me. Just buy the components and do it yourself. And I said, if it doesn't, well, then you'd have to think up a little bit more about it. But that seemed to work really well with people because uh, it gave them a baseline to go by. They could use, quote, kind of use my chassis, as, if you want to call it, as kind of a standard for them or something they could visualize and operate and then they could do their own, and if it, uh, and then a lot of times people would say, well, you know, I, I did the repowering, but it doesn't quite do this and it doesn't quite do that. And I spend a lot of time with them on the phone saying, well, did you do this? Did you do that? You know, and, and then hence why some of these repowering articles and books came up uh, to, uh, you know, give people more knowledge about 
what they needed to do to tune things up, you know. So. Well, Joe, maybe not so much doing a, a full book, but maybe a series of, you know, some YouTube. Oh, absolutely. You absolutely. know, that, that actually shows the locomotive running, and, and that'll really convey the baseline to people, you know. Yeah. Oh, I... You know the you know the problem with that is that, that there is just not with so many things <laughs> there's just not enough time in the day and and I actually got myself a camera and I'm um, I just haven't had time to get up to speed with you know doing the photography and then do, and then putting it on YouTube and, and I know it's not that hard but it's it's not that it's hard or it's easy it's that just sitting down and getting the time to do it with all the other things that are going on. So it would be nice if I could work with somebody else and and work as a team and and get some of the stuff done. So it's still a possibility, and I'm I'm definitely up for it. So yeah, people ask me um, to do the same thing, and it ends up being for the exact same reason. It's not that I don't have the camera, and it's not that I don't necessarily want to do it. It just it's time that you have to dedicate to something that you really rather spend your time doing something else. Well, you know, you know that's not quite true. I would love to do it all. <laughs> And that's one of my problems. I, I keep getting sidetracked and getting involved with things that I probably shouldn't get involved with. But, but I really enjoy the hobby, and I, and I and I enjoy all this stuff. It's like I think I mentioned to you last time we talked is that uh, you know there's a saying about um, you know if you're an auto mechanic you don't want to come home and work on your car. That's not the case with me. Um, I am I'm you know I'm a model railroad. I'm a rail fan. I. I'm a manufacturer, but I still like, I mean, I have a layout upstairs, and I'm working on it, and uh, I'm a member of a club down in San Diego, and I love to go down and run trains and operate, and, you know, especially operating sessions and stuff like that. So I'm into it. It's not it's not a sideline for me, and I enjoy the whole process, and especially the, you know, meeting with people. And the, the thing now is to me is what one of the things I really enjoy is, sharing my as much knowledge and, and information as I have with other people and seeing them take that and and enjoy the and they enjoy the hobby more or and try to save them from uh wasting time with things that maybe they shouldn't be wasting their time with or try to advance them faster to a point where they can be having more fun. So I mean I'm I right now to give you an example, I have joined a local club here who got kicked out of their, their their place after about five or six years of building this complete 2,500 square foot layout. They got kicked out of the place. So now they're into a new facility and uh, I know a lot of the guys. So I don't know. I, I got involved with the club and I'm helping them design the layout and the bench work and I keep saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't have the time for this. But I, you know, I, like I said, it's a disease and I have the disease and I don't know what to tell you. And nobody's got a cure for it yet. So I think a lot of us do. The cure is more trains. Yeah, exactly, exactly, Chris. You got it. No. Anyway, uh, let me. Unfortunately, that's like scratching an itch. No matter how much you scratch the itch, it never stops itching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a good, it's a good itch. It's a good scratch. Oh, it doesn't. It it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy it while you're scratching the itch, but the itch never yeah. goes away. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me jump to. Uh, let me jump up to 1980 because that's a turning point in the company as far as uh, diversification goes. Uh, 1980 is when we uh, got involved with uh, new ideas and new products, and, there, and the, the key reason for that was uh, was because that we had the repowering and the chassis and all that stuff, but 
Um, because the chassis were so labor-intense and I didn't have the time to do that, um, so consequently that, that stream of income was not coming in like it used to. So I had this, I said, well, you know, if we're going to keep going, we have to do something else. We'll be back to the podcast in just a moment. Have you uh, been watching Trainmaster TV? Have you subscribed? There's a couple ways you can do it. You can do it monthly for $5.99. You can buy a one-year membership for $55. So that's like $4.58 a month. Uh, you can go out there and uh, lock it in for two years, 99 which takes that monthly cost down to 413 Watch the website because there are subscription specials from time to time. Besides the new content that Barry and his people put up every month, there's the uh, uh, all the videos that uh, Joe Fugit did over the years. Some of those I have watched time and time again, especially the uh, the how-to videos. Something as simple as zip texturing, making deciduous trees, making conifers. Uh, even some of the vendors have demonstration videos on there. I watch it on my iPad. If you've got Google Chrome, you can stream it to your big screen. It's just a really neat service, and it's a good value. Seriously, give it a consideration. I think once you try it out a couple times, you will subscribe. Okay, let's get back to Mr. D'Elia and find out what's next on uh, the story of uh, Protopower West and A-Line. Falling back on my roots of uh, rail fanning and so on and so forth, happened to be up at Cajon Pass one day back in the 80s, and lo and behold, <clears throat> I was up at Summit, and this freight train comes through, and it's got the weirdest equipment that you could ever believe on it. It had these blue wells with these funny-looking boxes on it. And that was the uh, that was the itch, and I started scratching it. Um, that's the first time I saw intermodal equipment coming over Cajon Pass, and I was just blown away by it. So over a period of time, that would be something that would be really neat to have as a model. And you got to remember that was the early days of intermodal, so the the industry itself and the hobbyists didn't know. If you said intermodal back in the 80s, people go, "What? What are you talking about?" Um, so. Anyway, seeing that equipment just got a, uh, lit a spark in, in my uh, in myself, and uh, I just went on from there and started uh, getting information. Contacted APL, contacted Thrall, got the drawings, and just got into it and developed the uh, first car we developed in the intermodal was the uh, the Thrall Low Pack 2000. Fortunately, APL was using it, so they were running a lot of equipment, American Present Line. And then the next car that came along, a major player, was the Gunderson Twin Stack car. And it was a departure because it had the Thrall car was a basically a well car. And the uh, Gunderson car was a uh, had, uh, I call them, wings on them. Uh, so they had a structure built up from the well uh, that with, with that two different theories of the way you secured the two con- top and bottom containers. And actually, just a little aside, between that, there was an ACF car which actually was the forerunner of the uh, of this type of a car that was made by ACF and 
Southern Pacific used it. Not no, you won't you wouldn't see a lot of them, but uh, that was kind of the very very beginnings of it. Then Gunderson, they're Oregon or Washington, where's where Gunderson? Portland. Is. I think they're from Portland. Portland, yeah. So anyway, so we those are the two cars we started off with. And an interesting little side story about the Gunderson car is, um, and you got to remember, this is the first time that I had ever been into developing a model, you know, a freight car or something. So I was, it was very new for me, and I had to learn how to work with molders and and drawings and tooling and all that kind of monkey motion. But the interesting thing was, is we when I developed how we were going to structure the car and how the kit was going to go together. Because at the time tooling was is, was expensive then, as in you know it's still expensive now. There's a there's a system where you can have a mold that has two parts, so it's two blocks, and if you open it, a part comes out. There's also a system in molding called four slides, where you have the mold opens up. It's like a box, and it opens up, and all the sides move out of the way, so the so you get a full complete body. We couldn't afford that at the time, so we went flat die which made the kit a little bit more labor-intense to put together because it wasn't a one-quote, one-piece body, although the thralls were, but the Gundersons weren't. So anyways, uh, the interesting thing about it is we so we developed the, developed the kit, developed the tooling, and, you know, went into production on it, and I had a chance to, because I was getting blueprints, knew the guys at Gunderson pretty well. As a matter of fact, the head engineer, of all things, what it in happened to be he was a model railroader and, and, and a member of the NMRA, if you could believe that. So I didn't have too many problems getting stuff from him, but I went up to visit the plant one day uh, after we, you know, well after we had developed the cars, and got to, to go out into the shop and watching them actually building the the Gunderson cars. And lo and behold, the way they manufactured the car was exactly the way we designed this flat tooling, and the way it was components that were built in separate component parts, and then erected and put together and welded together. Like we, you were take the kit apart, you know, cut it off as trees, put it together and glue it, and, and it was it was a mind-boggling situation to see that that we had basically, without even really knowing it, kind of designed the car assembly as the way the prototype did. So that was a that was kind of a neat thing for me. But along with this this whole intermodal thing that we went in that we got into, there there was an idea that I had about <clears throat> since this whole concept of intermodal and intermodal cars and containers was so brand new. Uh, you know, in, in our hobby over the years, it's always taken a substantial number of years for something new to come out in the prototype and then for some manufacturer to finally decide to come up with it. But I'll give you an example, like how long was the SD40-2 on the railroad and how long did it take before we actually got a model of it? It was quite a few years. And a lot of times that... A lot of times that would be a standard situation. Problem I was fighting is uh, we were so on, we were so cutting edge of being right on top of the prototype that the the model railroading industry or industry the the model railroading public, if you want to call it that, were not aware of what really what was going on unless they were out rail fanning and saw the. So uh, in my mind, I said, well, I've got to make this more of a complete package. I can't. Uh, and a lot of times when people would come up with undecorated equipment, you'd have to wait till and Chris can. This is close to Chris, and you have to wait till Microscale came out with decals for it. Oh, what? What? Why? <laughs> well, because that's the way the process went in the olden days. There would be a car, and then Microscale would come out decals for it. So, anyways, I thought, well, you know, I can't depend on that process. So, not only did we develop, we made the intermodal cars. I said, well, if you have an intermodal car, you got to have a load for it. Well, we were kind of almost forced into making a load because I didn't think there was nobody that I knew was going to run out and make containers because half people didn't even know what containers were. 
So we made the cars, we made the load, which was the containers, and we made several different configurations. Then we also did our research and had Microscale make our decals for us for all the cars and containers. And then I went one step further because I knew that there was a couple of different levels of modelers. There was a guy who just wanted to buy the kit, put it together, and paint it and decal it and run it. But then there was another, there was another group of people who wanted more detail. Well, if I'd have built more detail into the car, it would have been more expensive for the tooling and to sell the kit. So I came up with the idea of is all the what I call extra detail parts, the chains and brake rods and extra detail things that uh, kind of dressed up the car a little bit. I put those into a separate kit, and I made those available separately. So now when you came back and you looked at the line, you could basically, from start to finish, you had everything that you needed to complete these cars from A-Line. The company name was Protopower West, and when we started into this intermodal business, uh, we were developing a whole new line of products that I wanted to run through distributors to get more distribution. And so we decided to come up with a name, and I came up with A-Line because it, it's a, a, it's it's kind of stood for a line of products. And plus it was A, and every time it was listed somewhere, it was listed at the beginning of the, of the list. So that, that worked out really well. But that was kind of my theory on on um, of this uh, coming out with a product line and giving it a, and making it a complete product line uh, for for the modeler and for hobby shops and distributors to be able to take this line on. They had a complete system. You didn't have to wait or go to somebody else to get something. So that I think that was a that was a great thing that worked out really well for us. And I kind of I've always kept that kind of that idea in the back of my mind when we come out with things is to try to make things uh, more complete. The other driving force when we come up with products is obviously that I feel that there's a need for them. But like in the modeling aspect of things, why we've got into so many detail parts over the years is is my idea, because I was a modeler too, is I when I came up with a detail part or I came up with anything for modeling, it my rationale for it was to it had to make it easier for the modeler to complete the project, not make it harder for him to complete the project. Or something that was more sturdy or something that would give more longevity to the project so that would so that when you're actually operating it and it was getting, you know, handled and beat up a little bit, it would it would have a little bit more strength to it and would last so you wouldn't have to keep repairing it. And one of the first things that always always used to get to me is I'd put the, uh, I won't mention the name of the company, but it was a plastic uh, diesel sunshade. And you were forever, you know, breaking those things off. And the problem is once you glued them on and you painted the model, if you broke them off, it was hell getting them back on and then matching, you know, trying to match the paint. So I said, again, my famous thing, there's got to be a better way. So I came up with the photo etch sunshade with the two little prongs that come out of it. You basically drill two little holes and you sh- you shove the sunshade into it and basically bend. You don't even have to glue it. You can just bend the tabs over from the inside and now uh, you paint it. And even if you do happen to twist it back and forth and eventually break it off, you basically just pull it out and replace it. And you could pre-paint it and then slide it back in. So that kind of theory is what I've always used when we've been making, we've made detail parts like our stirrup steps for the freight cars and a lot of other things. So that's, that has always worked really well for us, that, that kind of a concept. See, in 1985, 
Well, one of the things that I said, too, back in 85 when we started this intermodal thing is that, I, and I, we even have it in our catalog because I did a kind of a little history of the, and, I, and I, made the, I made the comment that I thought this intermodal thing, you know, at the time, I thought, I said that it's going to be the wave of the future. And at that time, I wish I'd have taken that one step further and had money to invest in the stock market because it, it, it made a lot of money over the years. But that was kind of an interesting thing, too, that I, I saw the potential in, in the intermodal industry back then. And one of the neat things, the offshoots of being able to be involved with the hobby and developing models and everything is over the years, there was an intermodal conference that would go on every year, and most of the time they would hold it, and this is the prototype, they would hold it in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And they had a, a big convention center there, and then riding kind of almost underneath the convention center, there was there was railroad tracks, and they used to bring the intermodal equipment in there and put them on display for the uh, for the uh, customers, you know, to look at the equipment and when, when Gunderson or whoever was trying to sell new equipment. And the neat thing was every year we, we would go to that intermodal show and uh, – so I got to know a lot of the uh, people who owned the companies that uh, were in the intermodal business. So that was that was a really neat uh, plus of being involved with this whole thing and, and being able to you know get to these prototype uh, situations and, and conventions and meet people and actually talk to them about the prototype and, and see what new things were coming out and. Um, uh, it was just that was uh, one of the really neat experiences as, as a sideline to, uh, to all this uh, you know model train and manufacturing into things. Right. So um, you actually witnessed the intermodal industry sort of develop. I mean, exactly. Where yeah. we're at the point now, it's like, oh, here we go, another stack train. It, yeah, oh, it's another stack. <laughs> another, a bunch of those boxes going by. And 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 in favor expression, oh, all that equipment looks all the same. It's really not. But I I had told the story about when you look at intermodal equipment, look at like a five banger, whether it's wells or or, or uh, spine car. Generally speaking, all the trucks are different. Um, yeah. They're, 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 you know, when you look at it carefully, you know, you look at them and, you know, yeah, they're 100-ton trucks, but each one is a different brand of truck because they the car got shopped out, they had to replace a wheel set or whatever, or the thing needed to keep moving, so they just put a truck under it to keep it going. And so, yeah, it looks kind of sort of the same, but in reality, it isn't, and most people don't get into the detail like that. Well, you know, I go, ba- I go back to, uh, you, you know, let's go back to the guys that are into, uh, you know, early freight equipment, and you could say, well, yeah, it's a box car. It looks all the same. But then you just, you know, if you said that to Richard Hendrickson or somebody, his, his, his hair would stand up on the back of his neck because he'd say, no, you're crazy. It's got, look, at it's got a Duryea and or it's got this kind of a roof walker. I mean, he could go through the litany of all the different things that are different from one box to another. Well, it's the same situation with intermodal. We can go to an intermodal yard and we can walk down the equipment and I can show you just tons of variations between, uh, between equipment. And the interesting thing, if you kind of followed the intermodal seen at all prototype is that you can see the way things were developed and tried and then that didn't work so they went so they changed it and they did this and and it's it's it would be very interesting to to somebody do a, a, a chronology of the equipment and what how it started and what how it changed and why it changed and how the market affected like for give you a quick example for the longest time um, there was a lot of uh, you know we went from 40 foot containers to 45 foot containers to 48 foot containers to 53 foot containers um, and as the market changed and the products changed because 53s are basically domestic they they now that I, I'm not they might go overseas a little bit, but mainly it's moving to domestic product. 
so they're, they're it's more lighter uh, commodities because it's a 53 foot box it gets really heavy uh, but then your other boxes like your 20 foot boxes uh, are where the there's a lot of weight put in them and obviously a lot of weight because it's only a 20 foot box but as the as the market changed and and the, the demand changed like for example there was they built uh i think they were 48 foot wells and built a lot of them and then the market changed and they didn't need all those 48 foot wells so they went back and actually modified the cars and shortened them to 40 foot because then they had a lot of 40 foot stuff that was coming through so the, the intermodal business has always been in a tremendous uh state of flux and it's it follows the needs of you know what it needs as far as uh, equipment goes and uh, and what works and what doesn't work. So it's it's a very it's a whole very interesting process. I don't know if anybody's there's been some books written on intermodal, but I don't know if they've really kind of uh, gone after that aspect of it. So to me, it would be interesting. Maybe to a lot of people wouldn't be. Um, let me go through this real quickly here. <clears throat> it's a list of uh, A-line products that we developed. Uh, detail parts, obviously, we got into a lot of detail parts, again, because uh, to make things easier and less work for the modeler, uh, that was my, my driving force in that. And I think we can honestly say we were the first ones that used the photo etching, like for the sun, that we did the photo etching sunshades. And then we did the metal stirrups, and uh, we did three different kinds of the uh, sunshades that we used. One, you know, for the EMDs, for the E-units, and uh, for the newer, the SD-90s, and the newer locomotives that used the longer sunshade. We, I'm pretty sure we were the first ones that ever made the the, the finely detailed windshield wipers that we uh, that we sell today. Still putting them on the RTR stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the photo etched the diesel steps, and then we also did an AEI tag. I don't know if anybody knows what AEI tags are. Do you do you remember those? Still have them today, but yeah, okay. And I'm and I'm pretty sure it means automated uh, equipment identification, but. Um, then we made some really nice unit side frames that work on the Athern trucks because at one time I modified an Athern chassis. And that's one thing we used to do too back, I'm just jumping back to the chassis real quick. We used to modify Athern chassis to fit different shells, not Athern shells, but other different shells. So I, I came up with modifying an FP45 chassis by machining the fuel tank a little shorter and then came in coming up with the E-unit side frames so you could put the... Um, lifelike and uh, the different plastic uh, unit shells that had the uh, not-so-great uh, chassis underneath. Uh, we also made uh, a set of replacement uh, uh, ends for the Model I tank car, so you could make about three or four different type of uh, different types of tank cars. You know, remember, this is back in the olden days. And then one of the things that we, we brought, I don't know how many years ago now, but it's probably been quite a few, but we've gotten into a whole line of uh, miniature brass chain. We have five different sizes and three different colored uh, configurations of that. And we have a you know full line of uh, repowering products, and then we also have, uh, which is not infinite, but we do have a fair amount of it, an extensive line of the rail power products, shells and parts and frames. I, I don't do a lot of advertising with it because we have a limited amount of it, and I do, I just don't want to be uh, I don't want to be deluged with orders. To be honest with you, because we don't have a we don't have a lot of it. So if if I could get more of it, then you know we would do more exposure to it. But it's been selling; it sells extremely well, anyways. Then we have also a, that goes along with the RPP stuff is we have a going back to the old days. Now we have a a whole line of metal handrails, stanchions, and brass rails that we make for the rail power and maybe a couple of the Athern locomotives. And then also we have a line of 
the laser cut uh, windshield window sets for the different rail power locomotives and Athern locomotives. And this gets into a point that I want to bring up here. Another thing, uh, kind of a theory that we use or something we like to use. I, I like to be able to say that if you come to us, we give you one-stop shopping. So basically, if you come to us and you're going to do a diesel, we can sell you the shell. We can sell you the handrails. We can sell you some details. We can sell you the power trucks. We can sell you a chassis. We can sell you a motor. Uh, we can sell you the window sets. So that's why I like to say one-stop shopping because a lot of times it's hard for people. They may find a particular component, and then well, they say, well, what about the rest of it? So, you know, going back to the intermodal thing of how we developed that product line, I carried that over into the situation with the detail parts and the locomotives and things like that. Trying to make it easier for people to uh, to find things, uh, even though we do have Google and the computer today. Uh, if, if you can save a little bit on shipping, going to one place yep. and ordering what you need and getting everything, then that's... That'll save you six dollars, you know, splitting the order or however, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, another area, going back to the old days of the club and the standards, is we many years ago we got into um, selling weight for weighting the uh, different equipment, weighting the locomotives, weighting the uh, rolling stock, you know, locomotives and freight. Uh, and we have several different. We have the the stick on lead. Well, now it's not stick on. It's not lead weights anymore because that they've gotten all over that. So we now our our weights are actually steel weights, same configuration, but they're steel and they still they're still stick on lead weight or still stick on weight. Uh, we have uh, we're just getting a new load that we've been out of it for quite a while of uh, a material called we have a lead putty actually, and then we also have uh, what I call a portable lead, which is just little BB little shot um, that you can mix up with white glue and pour into areas. So that the whole weighting system is, is uh, has gone very well over the years because it's something that, you know, uh, is, it's there's really a need for it. And, again, this is the kind of a one-stop shopping thing where we've got, you know, three or four different configurations of this weighting material, so not too much we don't have that, that uh, would not take. But we also have, which is going to be kind of phased out, I think, but we at one time, and, and I think we have a little bit of left. We used to sell a lead sheet. Uh, the other areas that we got into also was uh, maintenance. I call them maintenance tools. Uh, we have, uh, I developed a, the bullseye uh, drill jig, and basically, again, how that came about was I had a whole group of ACF Athern uh, hoppers <clears throat> that, I, that were painted and detailed and uh, um, not, you know, not up to speed with the Intermountains and Atherns and all that, but they were, they were, there was so much work into them, I didn't want to get rid of them. So, uh, but I wanted to run them more often. And the problem is the Atherin little Matherin, uh metal clip that's on the coupler boxes to me is kind of a pain in the butt, especially if it comes off or comes loose. So, I wanted to go through and upgrade all my cars, and I started doing it by hand. I started trying to find the center of the boss in the coupler box, you know, with an awl and prick a hole in it and then drill a hole through it and then tap it. And that got old real quick. And if you're and if you're off enough, you'll drill the hole and you'll break through the the boss so that, that, that wasn't a doing it by hand is not cut wasn't cutting it i said now there's got to be a better way so consequently i from my my past experience at, at jobs that uh, i was a uh, used to work in an r&d lab for a company so i, I learned a lot of great skills at that r&d lab and i came up with this i said well let's make a just to make it something that's repeatable and let's make a drill fixture so i designed it and had my machine shop uh you know, make up some samples, and uh, lo and behold, now we have the bullseye drill jig, and it is uh, gone extremely well as far as sales go. 
but along with product line, and again, again, I have to I'll go back and beat the beat the dead horse here with the one-stop shopping. Um, it's one thing to come up with a drill jig, but I had I wanted to think through the process of okay, what would the modeler what does the modeler need, and which what would be nice for him to have, and then on the uh, on the manufacturing end of it or or the sales end of it is okay. Can I come up with something that is going to be Interesting enough for a distributor to want to handle it and also for a hobby shop to want to put it in uh, to be able to sell it. So not only did I come up with a bullseye drill jig, I came up with a tap jig, which you put the tap through to keep it straight. And then I also came up with uh, a very small blackened Phillips screw to screw the lid back on once you've done your process. Came up with extra coupler covers. Um, and so basically, I actually came up with, with, you know, I offer, uh, offer a tap and I offer a drill and so on and so forth, and tried to package this stuff in interesting uh, groups uh, so that when you brought the line in, you had, again, one-stop shopping. A guy could come in, he could buy, he could buy whatever he needed. He could buy all of the different components or just some of them or whatever. And that system, again, has proved itself and has worked very, very well as far as satisfying the the needs of the hobbyist and the, the distributors in the in the shops. Uh, we we we've still been making something that started off again at the club, um, you know, to keep the track clean. You know, the old masonite uh, pad that you put underneath a 40 foot box car. Uh, yes. We started that back when I was in the in the club, and I, that's kind of where I got the idea from it. And what I would do is I would I came up with that that the concept and, and people would see the car and they'd say uh, what is that and I said well it's just a piece of masonite I said you could you know you could cut one and make one yourself and the resounding answer I got back from is no I don't want to make it I want to buy it so that was the impetus for me to come out with a product and it's not something I thought of I mean it's as old as the hills but it's that situation where people want to they think something's a good idea but they don't either have the time or expertise or whatever and they don't want to build it; they want to buy it. So, consequently, I I feel I you know feel that need. And to, to this day, we are still selling those Mason iPads. And and the thing is, they work. I mean, I run one. Uh, I run one on my. I, I don't run one. I put one in every. Basically, my rule of thumb is to put one in every train. And I try to. When we were in the club, that was a, a standards rule that I would set that everybody had to have at least one slider in every train, uh, running it. You know, with time. Um, so <clears throat> I have a whole thing about track and cleaning, and I, I won't get into that. Maybe we can save that for another time. But So we had the, the track shiner, which is, is still selling really well. Uh, we did make a, again, need, you know, is a, a, there's a problem and a need in a, and come up with an answer for it. Um, I In the olden days, before we had all the neat flat cars we have today, uh, Atherton's 85-foot uh, flat was, was, was a good car. And the only problem was it sat too high and it didn't have enough weights. Um, so I designed some end weights for the Atherton 85-foot flat car, uh, which lower it and uh, uh, use a standard KD uh, five box. But I also put a little spring in there, so you actually, if you set it up that way, it actually has like a, almost like a hydro cushion effect, which is kind of neat. You can build it either way. So that's kind of a neat thing that we've had over the years that uh, sells pretty well. Um, and a whole other area that we got into because I can't stop because I got a disease is I'm very interested in vehicles. Uh, I'm a real vehicle guy. I was a 
I was a street rider in my in my youth and built you know cars and street rides. So I was always involved in vehicles. What more perfect situation you get into you know into the hobby and so um, and then because of the inner interest in intermodal and that we were intermodal we were involved in intermodal. Obviously, intermodal is TOFC flats and trailers and so on and so forth. So here again, oh, well, I, I didn't feel that at the time there was really good trailers available. It, you know, the 53s when we when we got the 53 foot trailers. So we developed the uh, plate trailer and the Duraplate trailer, and we developed a uh, a reefer trailer. And again, a neat situation about getting into all those areas. Uh, going back to that story about the intermodal yard uh, or intermodal uh, shows, we got to know the people at the different trailer companies, and uh, were a great guy that we uh, we met, uh, who used to work for Wabash, who made the uh, plate trailer. We had a chance to go back east, and uh, he gave us a tour through the factory and showed us, got to see how the trailers were made, how the the Duraplate material was made for the sides, and uh, that's probably one of the greatest things of. Uh, of this of this journey, I guess I can call it, is being able to be able to get into places where where people most people couldn't get into and see behind the scenes of how these things were actually made and developed, and and it helped tremendously, you know, for developing the products. You know, uh, it kind of jaded me a little bit because because I could see the prototype and I could see the product. I was always pushed to try to duplicate it as is you know, as exactly as I possibly could within reason. So that was a little bit of a plus and minus. It's it's hard to make, if you know what's, what it's supposed to be, it's hard to make something look like it doesn't, it's not supposed to be. So, so again, vehicle-wise, our trailers and uh, detail parts, wheels, tires, we have a very extensive line of detail parts and uh, for tractors and trailers. And, of course, uh, last but not least, and we talked about them a little bit, our hobby tote system, which is, you know, obviously a great system. I always tell people, you know, they kind of balk a little bit at the price, but I say, well, you know, what, what today can you buy and it'll last for a lifetime? And, basically, I've had my original boxes and my original bag, you know, at least 30 or, or more years now. So, I mean, unless you roll over them with a truck, you know, they, they're very, uh, even though they're corrugated cardboard, they're very sturdy, uh, but they're, and they're double, some of them are double wall and all that. So that has been a, a great uh, a great system and a great a great product. I was just making yeah. some the other day, and I thought I can do this blindfolded. And there's some little tricks I have of, of of making it easier to go together. And I just need to do a YouTube video. The store the other day, and the other clerks are looking at me, and the customers are laughing. I said, "Okay, I haven't <laughs> done one of these in a while. Cut me some slack. I'll get it." And it's. The top's a lot easier. The bottom, because of the interlocking flaps, but, you know, it's a great, okay. great uh, system. Here's a, here's a question. You know, especially intermodal cars with containers, high-cube boxes that won't lay on their sides properly in the other type of box. The other thing that bothers or one of my sticklers is when I plug a steam locomotive into its tender, those are very fragile wires and you know, six-pin connectors, I don't care if it's Aether, and I don't care if it's River Rossi, Intermountain. They don't take a lot of abuse. So when I plug mine together, I then, using padded uh, foam, I pick up a locomotive tender as a unit and set it into a box. And because I don't have a specific box that will fit just a locomotive, that or I'll take cars out of one of your boxes so I can set it and I'll carry that to the store. And I thought, 
I wonder if I could talk to Joe about making locomotive, you know, downsize your your box into, I don't know, 12, 15-inch longs that would allow people with steam locomotives to pick up and transport, you know, that mm-hmm. without having to take it well, apart. Well, uh, this gets back into a, an interesting situation that I, I wrestle with a lot. You're, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about things, and I may get input from people, and I may not get people input. But I, I get general input that says, uh, you know, why don't you make a box for for uh, just locomotives? And my first question is, okay, how long how long should I make this okay. box? And, and then you get, and then I get 20 different answers of how long I should make the box. See, the theory behind how I configured the box that I have today is. One of, one of the criteria was that if you're going, if I was going to be, because I was mainly transporting stuff, it was, sure, I was storing stuff, but I was also transporting. It had to be that the bag had to be comfortable when you were, when you were carrying it. So consequently, that's why the width of it is not too, is, is wide as it is. Because if you're holding the, if you're holding the straps of the bag and you're holding the bag and it's hanging down next to your leg, if it was any wider, you'd be leaning over. You can basically stand erect and have the and be holding the bag and it can be right next to your leg and it's not you're not leaning over or having to lean over to, to so it isn't in the way of you you know of you carrying or walking with it the the wider you get that creates a problem for that and lengthwise a lot of guys will take um, different types of uh, two-wheel dollies or carts and whatever and as you go through a standard doorway, if the box got any longer, you couldn't fit through a standard doorway wheeling it in. You'd have to wheel, you'd have to take it in straight. So these were a lot of the configuration. And plus the other thing back in the old days, there was a configuration of, uh, it's changed now, but you know, I could take a hobby tote on an airplane and the stewardess would always look at me real quick, funny, like, what's that guy going to do with that big box? Well, I get to my place. I'd open up the overhead, I'd slide one of the boxes out, the top of the bag would collapse, and then I'd shove that part of it in, and then I'd put the, the, the loose box, I'd shove that in after that, and then, it, you know, then they'd look at me and they'd go, oh, okay, I see how you're going to do it now. So that was the situation. So configuring these things any larger or smaller was, was a very tricky situation because I was trying to get them to work with a lot of different things. I've had people say, why don't you make uh, the bag smaller? Why don't you make the bag bigger? You know, um, and, you know, on and on and on. The problem is, you've got to remember something, if you're a manufacturer and you're dealing with distributors and you're dealing with hobby shops and even the hobbyist, the, and this is a little adage I have here, is that the, really the distributors and, not taking anything away from the guys, but the distributors and the hobby shops don't really sell your product your product sells itself and how much money you spend advertising it because i can't tell you over the years how many times i have had people call me and said i went to my local hobby shop and they don't carry your stuff and you know here i'm sitting on the end of the end of the phone banging on the desk you know and how can i get around this well how you get around it is you've got to keep this product line as fresh and as interesting and as simple as you possibly can for the distributor and the and the hobby shop because and you know one of you guys is involved in the hobby shop you know trying to convince hobby shops to to bring products in it's it's a it's a mind-boggling situation 
you know. The owner, every, and every owner has a different idea of what he wants to put in or what he doesn't want to put in or why he should put it in or why he shouldn't put it in. And I've had conversations with hobby shop owners, and, and, and I've said to them, you know, I've given them my pitch, and, yeah, you should really put this in and so on and so forth. And I've made I've made statements like, you know, if you at least try my product and you put it in and it doesn't sell, I'll take it back. And I said, you tell me what other manufacturer is going to tell you that. Um, so I've tried to use that ploy. A lot of times people are just, uh, the owners of the hobby shop are just set in their ways and they're not open to new things. Or And I said to them, I say to them you know, I, I can, no. I'll guarantee you I can go into your shop right today. If I could get to your shop and I can... I could tell you that you've got a lot of product that that is dead stuff that that it just does not move, and you still have it in your product, you still have it in your store, and you're still it's still taking up space, but yet you won't put my product in and try it out. And it's not like see the other thing too is over the years that I I tried to incorporate in my product line is you can kind of go through my product line, especially back in the beginning. And I purposely designed things where there was no duplication and I had no competition. And the reason for that is why would I want to get into a product line or, or develop a product that there are 20 other of the same thing? So my idea is you come up with ideas for products that nobody else is doing. And part of one of the reasons for that was obviously I want the whole pie, not part of the pie. The other reason was that I could go to a hobby shop owner or a distributor and I could say, take this, take my line on. And, you, and there is no other competition for it. So it's not like you have to stock my particular item and then four others that are exactly the same or very close to it. And that still wouldn't cut any ice with some of these people. So, like I said, that whole area has been a real uphill struggle and battle as far as, in, um, you know, as far as products and getting them out in the marketplace. And that's why we have our own website that we sell stuff through because, I've given up. I mean, if I can't get, if the hobby shop won't put the item in, why, why should I lose business, you know? Sorry. And I always direct people to, I say, I always ask them, like a retail customer calls, I say, what's your local hobby shop? What do you deal with? And they'll say so-and-so. And I say, well, do they handle our product line? And they'll either say yes or no, or most of the time they say no. And I say, well, you can, you can either go in and ask the owner to, to bring it in because we have distributors, or you can buy it directly from us. So I, I always give people the option and I don't try to, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm still supporting whatever's left of hobby shops, but and that's a whole other thing I don't even want to get into right now. But well, we carry your product, and I don't have a problem like you were talking about the rationale behind your dimensions. Yeah, I'm, I think your product is dead nuts on there. I was just thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if there were? Well, like I said, it's 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 deciding what's what's the magic size, you know, that yeah. we that we have to make this for, and how long. A box, and you know what's the maximum length locomotive that the, that you that you want to put in, put and so on and so forth. See, the the thing that that I do is, uh, I mean, the longest steam locomotive, maybe what is it, a cab forward or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously our boxes are somewhere in the neighborhood of 28 inches long. Well, one of the slots is for that. See, here's the other thing you got to remember too. What I have found over the years when I run run myself or watch what other people do is most of the time being a little facetious here you're not going to bring every piece of equipment you own when you go down to a club and run it you're going to run uh, you're going to probably bring a couple of trains maybe you know unless you're really crazy then you can bring everything and whatever you want but so the maximum to me that i was that i've ever had or or have come up to people 
they're going to possibly, and I don't even see this a lot, that they're going to take two of my hobby totes down to run. Now, within those two hobby totes, you can get a lot of equipment, depending on whether it's the high or the lows. The other thing is, if you try to load a box, if you try to, let's say, the hobby tote system, if you try to load that a, bo- uh, a set of boxes with just locomotives, you're going to break your arm off. Yeah, and plus, you're not going to... Oh, it can get heavy. Ask yourself the question, if you go down to run at a club, how many of your locomotives are you going to run at one run, at one operating session? You're not going to run 20, I can guarantee you that. I'll go out on a limb and say, I would go out on a limb and say, you're, maybe you'd be lucky if you ran 10. And see where I deviate from your characterization there is, I just keep buying boxes, and I pack trains into them. I don't... To use your example, I don't unpack box A to put different cars in it to transport. <laughs> That's just too much work for me. I'll just go buy more boxes, and then here, these three boxes are intermodal train A. I pick up those three boxes. They've got their locomotives in them, and we go off to the store. I bring it back. Here's my transitional box with 40s and 50s equipment and a steam locomotive. Well, no, no. That- I just never take this stuff in and out. It's well, but there, but there's no problem with what you said because you're basically doing what I'm saying is you're 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 compartmentizing you're you're putting trains together. So what I'm saying is that, and what I think what you proved to me is that you're not you're not in that set of boxes. You're not bringing 20 locomotives. You're bringing a certain amount of locomotives and a certain amount of freight cars. You're actually bringing a train, and that's exactly what my premise is. Is that's what I do. I bring a certain amount of locomotives and a certain amount of freight cars, but I don't bring one full hobby tote system of just locomotives. So, n- not to say not, not to say that no, your concept isn't right. isn't a valid concept of, of maybe a boxwood uh, for steam, but but here's the bottom line: I have to take I have to go out on a limb here, and I have to decide is that product going to really sell? You know, and I mean, how many to make a die and to go through giving it part numbers and then going through the distributors and pricing it and and then and then here's the bottom line getting the hobby shop off the dime to bring another product and they're unfortunately a lot of hobby shops are not not very progressive and they're not very far thinking and they won't try things they're kind of stuck in their ways and unfortunately that's why a lot of them are not around anymore. So, but then again, these are the same people that uh, have the model power steam locomotives, and they want to sell them for full retail price out of the Walters catalog, and they wonder why they still have them. Yeah. Well, and you know, another thing, a theory of mine, since we're talking a little bit about hobby shops here, one of the things, and because we've owned we owned a hobby shop for many years, and I I threatened to open up another one, but my wife says if I open one, she's going to kill me. So I don't think that's going to work. But the thing, the concept is here is that. I, our concept was when we started our hobby shop, and, and it would be today, is uh, there isn't an, well, unless you had an unlimited amount of money and you could afford an unlimited amount of space like Caboose Hobby that has a, an old market, you know. But but a standard, you know, reasonably reasonable-sized hobby shop and so on and so forth, there's no way in the world that you can be something to everybody. So my idea of opening up a hobby shop today, and I and I could open one tomorrow and be extremely successful with it. I guarantee you, stake my life on it, that you have to decide. You have to decide on what the heck you're going to do, and you have to specialize. You can't be something to everybody. There isn't enough space and time and knowledge to be knowledgeable about every single scale and every single idiosyncrasy and detail and all those different scales and 
and uh, possibly do that. You'd have to have a staff of hundreds, you know, or, or a lot of people. I don't know what I don't know what Caboose's staff is, but they have a lot of people there, and you have to have that staff has to be knowledgeable. So my point is, is that you need to you need to make some decisions before you open up the store on what you're going to put in and what you're going to be able to to service the customers. Knowledge, you know, to be knowledgeable about the products you're selling, and also to have enough money to be able to stock some line of products that, uh, or group of products, or, or a certain scale, or what. When we had our hobby shop, it was HO only. We didn't handle anything else. It, not to say that there's anything wrong with the other scales, but my concept was: is what's the biggest? What's the biggest market? It's HO. What's the most stuff available? HO. Well, I had my hands full just dealing with HO without bringing one other scale in. Now, everybody's got their own idea of what they want to do, but somebody could specialize in O, somebody could specialize in in um, narrow gauge. I mean, but, but you get my drift of what I'm saying. I think too many shops try to be, they try to they try to take on too much and they do a poor job uh, overall of everything. Of, of everything, yeah. So uh, last but not least, because I don't want to forget it, here about five, six years ago, we bought a company from uh, some guys who, um, one of the guys that developed the product, very, very sharp, very bright guy. It's our Blue Point switch machine, and the company name is New Rail Models. Uh, and along with the Blue Point switch machine, we have the throttle pockets, which hold all of the DCC controllers on the uh, fascia of the layout, and also our uh, drink and tool holder, which is a neat little product. But the main uh, main thrust here is the Blue Point switch machine. How that evolved was I saw this product, and when I was building my layout, I you know I was going to put a certain amount of tortoises in. And then I happened to, I don't remember where I actually saw the product, uh, but I was very interested in it. And um, so I contacted them, and I, I wanted to buy it. And I bought some to put in, you know, to install on the layout. And I installed them, and I instantly just went crazy. I, I fell in love with them. And I called them back up, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to uh, handle these line, you know, handle this product line and, uh, you know, and sell it through our stores. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, oh, yeah, okay, fine, but by the way, the company's for sale. And I went, oh, no. So I called them up and made a meeting with them, went up, and, and they were up north. I had a meeting with them, and long and short of it, I bought the company and never looked back. And it is still, to me, just one of the neatest um, neatest things going. And what has rung true with a lot of people, because I – they weren't doing a lot of marketing because this was all secondary to them. They had their, quote, real jobs. So, and that's kind of why they wanted to get rid of it because they didn't really have time to, to, uh, to really do the marketing it should. So I, I've done, I think, a fairly good job with it. But the, the, the concept was, uh, that, that came to me when I started putting them in my layout is that I found a, a situation with my layout is, um, it's a fairly good sized layout, but the more you run on the layout, the smaller it gets. So I said to myself, well, if that's the case, I'm, I can't make the layout any bigger because the room can't get any bigger. So what can I do? Well, two things you can do. You can slow the trains down, and you can slow the operation of the layout down. And one of the ways to slow the operation down is to have something that's manual. And the other thing about that is that by pushing and pulling, because it's a manual switch machine, it has no motor in it, it's connected with a uh, plastic uh, inner and outer cable, uh, basically, it gives you the, the feeling that you're getting off the locomotive and you're throwing the switch. And, and if you think about it that way, it kind of makes it more colorful and it, you kind of get into the operation a little bit more. So I've mentioned that to people when I've gone to shows and I've been talking to people, and that has really rung 
that has really rung true with a lot of people. And I think because of that that fact alone, uh, a lot of people have tried them and uh, and gotten into them. And especially then, you know, I, I advertise in the Narragansett Short Line Gazette, and you know, those people are are really into that kind of stuff. But uh, but there has been a lot of uh, big layouts um, that have adopted the the Blue Point and. Uh, and I never say that the blue point, you know, takes the place of a, of a tortoise. There's a place for tortoises and there's a place for blue points. So, and I'm going to use tortoise in my crossovers because I got to throw two switches at the same time. But the biggest majority of all my other switches are, are obviously the blue point, and not not really because I own the company, because but because it's a it's a neat, it's just a neat product and it has a lot of neat features to it. It has a double pole, double throw switch built into it. Uh, which will power the uh, power route the the, uh, the the switch itself, and also have the other contacts are for uh, signaling or lighting. So uh, it's like I said, it's a great system. I developed a, a drill jig for it uh, that makes it just bulletproof to install uh, on our website. I've developed uh, several different methods of installing the machine. Uh, one of the things I thought of, well, there's a, gonna, a guy's going to install this machine before he's got his track down, which is one method of putting it in. And I said, well, what about the guy who's already got his track down and you want to install the machine? And that could be a whole other situation. So I developed a method for that, and then I, I've got a method for uh, for installing it on, uh, you know, everybody's going to foam uh, foam bench work or foam blocks to, for their base. So I've got a method of installing it, uh, you know, in foam. So between that and, and having that uh, pictures and, and descriptions on the website, I think that's uh, made it a lot more comfortable for people to uh, get the product and try it out. But uh, had very had extremely good success with the machine, and the sales are are extremely extremely good, um, and it's just gone very very well. So that's uh, that's the last of the. Uh, of the uh, actually the product line, and again, all of our stuff uh, uh, is available on our website, which is ppw-aline.com, um, <clears throat> and it's also it's a fully enabled shopping cart secured, so people want to buy from it. Um, and then one of the things we say is uh, you won't believe all the neat stuff. So besides our own product line that we have on the website. Uh, it's even mind-boggling to me. We have a lot of other stuff on there, and again, using because it's a because it's a virtual hobby shop. It's not a brick and mortar, but I still use my same concept. If you look on there, you won't find any other scale but HO, and you'll find a lot of diversity in the product line. But yet, yet you'll find a lot of one-stop shopping type of thing in there too. And you'll still you'll see the whole you'll see the all the things that we have there. But they all fall into the same kind of a get. There's a vehicle section. There's an intermodal section. You know, I've I've kept to that that theory of, uh, the, you know, where there's a method to the madness and uh, and specializing. Uh, there a lot of stuff on our website. You will find, you will not find on any other place. And obviously that that like I said again, that was my theory with our our real our hobby shop. And I carried that over. And we've been very very successful with the. Uh, with the website, and I just unfortunately wish I had more time to devote to doing uh, YouTube videos and doing more informational stuff up uh, there, like on repowering and just a lot of different things. So, who maybe that's a uh, matchup with uh, Trainmaster TV? I think that very well could be. 
the Delia segment. Yeah. Yeah, do do a repowering segment for Trainmaster TV. That that might be a pitch you got to make over to uh, um, the guys up there. But he still has to have the time to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, but Trend I'll tell you a problem. <laughs> well, but yeah, that yes, that's true. But I'll tell you one of the other things that I'm a strong proponent, strong believer in, is two or three heads are better than one. Now, if you've got expertise in one area, I've got expertise in a certain area, and maybe Chris has an expertise, and we put those expertise together, we we can come up with this final uh, product or final um, situation. Um, you know, I don't have the time to shoot the video and, to, you know, and to edit it and to caption it and so on and so forth. But between, let's say, a group of the two or three of us, yeah, we could probably do. And then plus you spread the load out uh, of of this of this thing you're trying to do. And, you know, because everybody's got their little expertise in their area, uh, maybe if I was to do it myself, I might miss something that maybe one of you guys would uh, would pick up on and, and – Collectively, we could do a, um, probably maybe do a better job of it than than if just maybe one of us to do was to do it or something like that. So well, I sense the mastermind group starting up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other yeah. the other thing is, is if you have somebody who's an expert at it, it will it may take you fifteen minutes. It takes him five. Yes, exactly. You know, so well, doesn't mean the, that you won't do you won't do as good of a job, perhaps. Right. Right, but well, he'll take to talk to Barry time. about because Barry does all. You know, he's he heads up Trainmaster TV, and he, he'll he'll give you a good a bunch of good pointers of what he's looking for. And with that in mind, it makes it a lot easier to just know. Well, if I just shoot this, hit the record button, and press stop, that's what he needs. Somebody that's used to somebody that's used to shooting this stuff that could. Uh, could give me some pointers in a basic format. And in other words, somebody that's been through it before, instead of me having to go through a learning curve and spending more time with it, uh, somebody else could say, well, you know, this is this is kind of the way I've done it, and this seems to work the best, and we get the best results from this or whatever. So, right. so yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. Well, Chris, I think you ought to carve out some time to go help I'll be seeing them Tuesday, right, Joe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chris and I will be, we'll be seeing each other quite a bit, I, I think, so. Uh, between w- between work and uh, WPM and and Primos and everything, so yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of collaboration here. I, I can sense it already. Yeah, a lot of a lot of juices flowing, in a good way though. So basically, that is uh, kind of the uh, the whole thing in a fairly long nutshell. There. <laughs> if you well, guys got any, any questions, like four peanuts in it, you know. Uh, let me ask you something, Joe. Are, are your power chassis, the ones that you tune up and stuff, still available? Uh, in a complete built-up configuration? Yes. Uh, yes, they are, but I always caution people that if they do want a chassis from me, it's going to take a while, so don't expect me to, you know, to crank it out in a couple of days and you get it in a week or something. It could be a couple of months. It could be that long. Are they made yes. to order? Is that what it is? See, before we used to have, we used to make them up ahead of time, and they used to be sitting on the shelf in the box, and we just pull them off the shelf and ship them. Yeah. But that was when there was no other product line. <laughs> that was just the chassis. Now there's so many, there's so much other stuff that uh, it's it's almost impossible to to do that. It, it was a situation where I'd have to hire somebody, and then you hire somebody, and then what happens to the price? The price has to go up. Now you may have covered this. Now all this stuff is produced in the United States, right? 
the only thing that's not produced in the United States is, the motors. is machine mechanic motors. <laughs> right. Well, everything else that. is all the blue point stuff is made up in Washington. Yes, everything else is uh is the flywheels are made here. Everything is uh Oh you know, I think it's a good point to mention that you still have overstock on rail power shells. Yeah. And those are long since absent from a lot of hobby shops, distributors and such. So that kind of puts you in a, a singular position of uh, still stocking and selling those things for guys that like to tinker and build their own uh, locomotives. Well, you know, people say today people aren't modeling. That is not true, or we wouldn't be in business <laughs> because that's all we really kind of sell, you know, I mean, other than the hobby totes and the blue points and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, yeah, there are I, – I, obviously, there's not as many people that are modeling, but there is – Let's put it this way: there is quite a few. I mean, if you any you get any anytime you get into an RPM situation, um, those those people are or narrow gauge. Those people are for the most part. Many of those people are modelers. So if, that's what's neat about if you want to be exposed to modeling and and modelers, and then that's kind of why RPM is the place to go. Kind of in in. You know, and when I say RPM, I mean all the different RPM events that are going on all over all over the country. Yeah, I, I see a lot, a lot of people fine tuning their stuff within like the narrow gauge community, the RPM community. You know, the operators group they want right. their stuff to run well, or they want to fix up some of the detail to make it more robust so it could be handled. You know, so there, there's a lot of customization beyond RTR because it, it doesn't fulfill everybody's needs straight out of the box, you know. Right. Well, and you know, you bring up an interesting point, Chris, is, is one of the things that's kind of been rolling around the back of my mind, but I, I, I gotta try to keep the reins in because I'm always off. You know, something comes up and I'm all, my mind already starts turning about, wow, what about, the, what if I make this or what if I make that? So it, it's I've got to really hold myself back because there's only you know obviously so many so much time in the day. But one of the big needs, and, and I don't know if, if there's enough business for people or, or you know for a company to do it, but one of the biggest things that I see with all the equipment that's coming out because it's so detailed and so fine uh, is that it's getting it get gets busted very easily, and there's no real easy way to repair or fix or really get a decent uh, selection of, of replacement parts. So uh, that's a real problem that I see today. I don't know. I've never – I have to ask more people, but I don't know what people are doing in that situation. Do they just run the equipment broken or, you know, or put it – or do they put it in a, somewhere and then they go out and buy new stuff or and that's what's keeping the hobby alive? I, I don't know. You know, maybe I thought about that. Maybe that's what the manufacturers are doing. They're making this stuff so fine and delicate that – they figure when you bust it, you're just going to put it in the box and you're going to buy a new one. Maybe that's what yeah. You know, I think there might be some of that to it. Um, <laughs> I know for a fact, at least personally, when the axle gears on my lifelike GP9 broke, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Is this the end of life of this thing? You know, and I um and odd about how I'm going to fix it. And then finally got got enough guts up to do it. And it, and it was a very simple fix. I thought I was going to have to ream out the the existing gears, try to glue it back together and all do all this elaborate stuff because you can't get axle gears from lifelike anymore, you know. So yeah. it, it, it's probably a product line coming up for anybody that wants to assume it of here's here's the common problem 
and here's the parts you need to fix it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then like a bunch said, of axle yeah. gears for your life, like locomotives, like number one. Number two will be like, uh, who knows, just like a broken side frame from something else, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or some way of, of uh, getting a better uh, handrail and, and stanchion system that's more robust. Yeah, well, I, I think, honestly, if a brass manufacturer wanted to do a quick run of something small, do like, a, you know, a, you, some Korean brass handrails for a ready-to-run locomotives that just are a drop-in fit to, that just replace the, the plastic ones, you know, I think that that would be pretty Pretty big selling right there, you know. Well, I, I'm going to do an inch, I'm going to do a little experiment uh, because there's uh, you know people will say, oh no, it doesn't look as good, blah blah blah. I'm going to take a standard Athern Genesis locomotive, and I'm going to take the same locomotive with let's say our handrail set, which is the which is the old style Matt Athern stanchion, you know, with the bend at the top, the round loop at the top, and the brass wire. And I'm going to do both locomotives up, and I'm going to take a picture of them for about three feet away and i'm going to defy somebody to tell me which one is which well you know um one thing that i noticed about the athern stanchion if at least the old school ones if you just came up with a system where you know you could put a little groove in it up and down Mm -hmm. to simulate Mm -hmm. that to get the channel effect yeah just get the channel effect you would knock it out of the ballpark. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. No, I, I've definitely I've thought about that too. So, but you know, it's interesting. There, there's a lot of, of, of mental myths that people have uh, that they they just don't they don't think through it, and they say, "Oh, that wouldn't look good." Well, you know, you didn't even try it. You didn't even look at it. Uh, and 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 the reason I bring up that example is because I have some of that situation on my layout, and I could be running two locomotives like old school stuff that I built years ago with something current and as it goes by I'm looking at it and I'm going wait a minute I I don't see the difference. I don't see that much difference now sure if you get up close but I mean within with you know the three foot rule you know no, it's just a, it's just something I I, I kind of wanted to do just to 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 kind of shake people up a little bit and say you know you, you're getting a little Sometimes you get a little bit crazy with this stuff, and uh, and sometimes things are not practical. You know, there's a. I've always when we've designed freight cars and different things, I, there's a point of being exact, and there's a point of being practical. And where that midpoint is is very hard to determine. It, it's you know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. But I think if people look at things a little bit differently, instead of just looking at it black and white, and they say, well, you know, you know, that's yeah, it's not a dead, you know, it's not right on the money, but man, it, you know, it looks pretty decent. And but yet, it's it's you can handle it and and uh, not abuse it, but you can handle it and it's gonna it's gonna hold up. I mean, I had a car go on its side at the club and uh, stirrups are gone on one end instantly. <laughs> so okay, so. What's that? What, so what does that prove? I got this finely detailed stirrup on there, and the car rolls over on the side one time at the club, and it's it's gone. And then yeah. now, do I, where do I get a replacement for it? Yeah, that, that's that's been a an epic constant battle for me to the point of like 
Well, I have the stuff that never leaves the box and then the stuff I actually run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there, you know, there really is, and there always has been, I think, over the years. And, and then consequently, that's why you have Detailed Associates and Details West and, and ourselves and all the other people that make, you know, parts. Um, is this, you know, uh, maybe it not, might not be replacement, but, you know, a lot of it's replacement or a lot of it's upgrade and stuff like that. So is there a market for it? Yeah, there is. How much of a market? That's another story, you know. So, and is, is it the, you know, you can ask the question, is it the manufacturer's responsibility uh, to, first of all, either build the cars a little bit more robust or have, uh, in the problem areas, have uh, replacement parts for them? And, right. and the answer to that question, I'm not even going to get into. <laughs> so. Well, uh, uh, it, it's just more opportunity for smaller manufacturers. Yeah, it is. You it know, exactly because is. these models aren't going to go away as soon as they get a problem. You know, right, in right. fact, they're just going to become more numerous. Yeah, so, yeah. and I just sell more boxes, so you can put more of the broken stuff in the boxes and then buy new stuff. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, it is. And I will be the first one to admit that I'm sick sometime. Uh, I think we've, well, we've I think we've hit all the high spots. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was great. Okay, let's drag into the gutter. What can we talk about uh, about uh, that's dark and uh, sinister? <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe more entertaining, Chris's. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Can we talk about Chris's drug test that he? Oh, oh, no, we don't, oh we don't want to talk about that. Christmas. No, no, I think I think I think I got hung up on the security check. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but you know, definitely let's uh, let's. I'm gonna throw this out to you guys. Let's pursue this situation of uh, you know, let's do some uh, informational YouTube videos or or information master because let, let's get some train master guys to to kind of hook their teeth into it because I, I think they have the know-how and the set and the sound and I, everything all dialed in. I think it's good to talk about repowering and stuff because there's a lot of, oh, good heavens, yes. you know, there's a lot of people that have locomotives out there that are just sitting idle. You know, I, I, I was guilty of that myself and, you know, it was a couple of Joe's parts that saved the day. I mean, I just found a pack of axle gears, replaced it and off I go. You know, so now, now, Joe, the, one of the problems that you talked about with the with the power trucks, they've got the problem with the pins and they don't they don't sit right. You can turn them into a semi equalized truck. That still happens with the uh, Genesis trucks, doesn't it? On occasion. Um, yes, it can. I, yeah, it can. I thought you'd yeah. I heard. So that's a good thing to know. Yeah. It, it, well, the, the the theory and the concept of of the problem and how to fix it is is still the same it, it might be it it's probably a little bit different uh with the genesis truck than it would be with the um if i want to say rtr truck uh to you know to to differentiate the two because if you were to take an rtr truck and you were to take a genesis truck and you were to physically have them on the bench and take them apart you can see that there's a quite a bit of difference in construction the genesis truck is a more what i feel is a more finely Detail, not detailed, but uh, well, let me put it bluntly to you. I don't think it's as sturdy as a truck as I would like to to see. Because you know, I know people abuse stuff. You know, 
Um, the RTR truck is pretty bulletproof. Um, the, you know, obviously both trucks have some advantages and disadvantages. They are constructed differently, so there might be a little bit different method of, of going through that equalizing process. But one of the things you got to remember with the Genesis truck is that, for the most part, it has a uh, stamped copper or brass uh, bar that runs behind the side frames, and the end of the axle rests in that brass stamping, and that's the path. That's your electrical path. It goes from the wheel to the axle to the brass strip, and then that brass strip has a wire soldered to it that goes up into the locomotive or attaches to the board. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different, little bit different electrical path, a little bit different design, a little bit different setup, and each truck has their own idiosyncrasies as far as the problems that they've had with it. Like for example, if that brass strip with the holes punched into it, if it's tweaked or bent or twisted or something, then then you have potential problems. Every every mechanism has its own pluses and minuses to it, and. As, as I play with more of them and I work through them, you know, we discover what's, I discovered, you know, what, what the problem is and how to fix it and things like that, so. But that's, it's, you, it's that, a would be very, that would be very useful stuff for everyone yeah. to know. That's my point. Yeah. And, and you know what I, and another thing why this is, a, would be maybe some good timing is I have been, from conversations that I've gotten or people that have called in, because either be it internet or be it phone, I could probably I could almost probably say I could sit here and maybe not full-time, but if people knew about it, I could probably full-time just be on the phone talking to people about problems and things and how to solve things and stuff like that. So, and getting back to what we're, you know, we're possibly talking about doing is that um, this way you put out that information and uh, a, hopefully a tremendous amount of people will get the advantage of, you know, how to, how to solve problems uh, that, you know, that have come up with things. Because there is a lot of, uh, in another area, matter of fact, something I, I, I almost forgot to mention to you guys, uh, in this whole mix of you know, everything we've been talking about, one of the other areas that's, that's on the forefront today and has its own set of idiosyncrasies and problems but dovetails right into the uh, repowering, and I think Chris brought this up, and the repowering and everything is DCC. Um, so, and just taking DCC by itself, I know a lot of people are covering DCC, but I have kind of gone through a little uh, situation myself. Soundtracks once a year has a school that you can go to if you're a dealer or a repair guy. And it's about a three or four day uh, seminar. And you go to uh, Durango and you get a tour through the, to the, through the uh, uh, soundtracks of facilities, which is a, which is great, just great to see the machine that puts these ports together and everything. And then you go through, we go up to the college there in, in uh, Durango, and we go through classes every day, um, just about through every phase, programming, and actually we put decoders in locomotives and speakers and so on and so forth. Uh, well, the long and short of it is, and then the other great thing about the whole trip, the whole weekend, is that you, you get to ride the Durango and Silverton up to uh, cool. up to the top of the hill. Um, but... The main point of what I wanted to bring up here is that because of I'm getting more and more involved with DCC and it's kind of kind of getting uh, getting into my blood a little bit, um, which it never was before. Um, then I am I've been talk, talking to the soundtracks guys and I'm going to I, I'm trying to put together a program here that we're going to have in San Diego, hopefully at one of the hotels. That's going to be a, a DCC seminar, uh, you know, a two or three day deal. 
because after me going through the classes and my experience so far with DCC personally, I feel that there's a, as much as repowering, there's a tremendous need to explain, try to explain in, in my theory is a, uh, instead of having something about DCC, having a program about DCC and trying to, to, to cover all the bases is just like the hobby shop. It's impossible. You cannot do it. I, I defy anybody to have a session or a two-day session and try to explain everything about DCC at some standard level. It's impossible. So my idea, my concept is, and I talked to guys at Soundtracks about it, is you have a beginning, uh, you have a beginner and you have an advanced seminars. And you separate them into that so that if you have people come to the event, you're not just going to have seminars that are all advanced or seminars that are all beginners. Uh, and you can actually, within the seminar, you can start off as a beginner, and if you are getting the stuff quick enough, you can take the advanced phase of it at, at the same seminar. I found that that's a little bit rough, but some people can absorb stuff quicker and some people can't. So there's a whole thing here, and I don't know the way other people have addressed it, but since I've gotten this contact with uh, kind of a relationship a little bit with the soundtracks guys, and and they will come out and do seminars and do and teaching. Um, they said if I can set it up, they would definitely come out and uh, be be a couple of the speakers that would uh, that would teach the classes, and I have other people too. But uh, I think that's a very important area. Uh, because when I get into club situations and I'm watching people, what they're doing with their decoders, I mean, what they're, how they're running the equipment, and, and I mean, give you an example. Uh, I go down and run out of club, and, you know, the people are, are, we're doing an operating session, and guys are pretty advanced. I mean, you know, fairly advanced. But the biggest majority of people still run their locomotives with the sound all the way cranked up as whole, as loud as it can possibly be. And I think to myself, well, you know, 126. I mean, you can turn the sound down. Real simple. But obviously, these people either don't want to do it or don't know how to do it or whatever. So, it's a lot of basic stuff that I see people not even utilizing in the DCC arena. Uh, so, that's why I got this idea that I, I think there's a, a lot of, of information and uh, training that needs to be made available to people so they can get more out of the DCC uh, than they're getting right now. Because I know a lot of people aren't even touching the, uh, the tip of the iceberg on, on what's available. Uh, just going through this, the soundtracks or the uh, soundtracks class just just opened my eyes up just unbelievably, you know. So... Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, there, there's so much to DCC. It's sort of like a hobby within itself, you know. It is. It exactly it is. Yes, yes. Uh, and there's so much that's being left on the table because it, it is, you know, it is fairly sophisticated, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and I think too many of the seminars uh, guys have tried to teach them, but they've tried to pile too much on on you at one time, uh, and it, it's just it's just mind-boggling. Right, and, and there's just so many, people are at so many different levels of yeah, yeah. advancement through DCC. I mean, the, some guys are extremely knowledgeable, very advanced, they're pretty sharp with it, and everyone, I mean, there's thousand points in between. <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. so a seminar that can kind of bring everybody up, you know, kind of advance them through at their own pace, I think would be a fantastic event. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's you know that's what I got out of the uh, out of the school, is that it was it was an overload. It was absolutely an overload of of information in in too short of a period of time. I mean, yeah, I could have stayed there a week, you know, and uh, if that would have been feasible and uh, to learn all this stuff. But e- even though, even if you were to learn all that stuff, unless you and they and being that it's a dealer situation, they have a binder that you come home with. It's a big thick binder that's got a lot of information in it about stuff. But, and you really need that. You really need that documentation because there's no way in the world that you're going to remember everything, even coming close to everything you learned. Plus, the other thing too is you can somebody can explain something to you, but I'm a hands-on guy, and I want to be able to take that information and I want to be able to stop and actually program my locomotives when I'm sitting there. And and that was the neat thing about the class. Everybody got an NCE uh, throttle. They loan. You could either buy it at the end of the class, or they they basically NC uh, they loaned it to you. So you actually were working with an actual throttle, and you were pushing buttons and programming, and and then seeing the reaction of the locomotive, and and so on and so forth. So that's you know just doing a a book learning uh, seminar and doing a hands on seminar to me uh, doesn't work for me. I have to have a, like a little bit of both. So that that's kind of one of the concepts I I want to do is if we uh if we put this program on together and and we have this uh this seminar hopefully sometime down the road here. So but I just wanted to throw that in because it's another important phase of uh of this whole bottle railroading thing and it's not going to go away by any means and it's even if nothing else it's going to get more sophisticated than anything else. Um and you know the more people uh get out of something uh the better they're going to feel about it you know and and stuff's not going to get cheaper it's the you know, the price of stuff is going to go up uh so if you if you can perceive value uh you don't mind paying maybe a little bit more money uh for certain things if if you're getting what out of it what you uh but because people don't realize the potential of what they're getting they may say ah, you know that's really expensive for that decoder or or throttle they don't they don't comprehend what what the potential is of what they're buying. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Okay, guys. Well, I don't want to bend your ear too long, but I had a great time as usual. And yeah, uh, Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. All right. And we'll, we'll talk Cheers. to you again soon, hopefully. Yep. Okay. 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 Bye-bye. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Okay, so the other day, one of my buddies here, he had two, I think they were made by Hallmark, U30 CG bodies. Factory painted, of course, in Santa Fe, war bonnet, and just a little bit of light weathering around the exhaust and stuff. And he needed uh, frames and, you know, power for him because they were just a shell. And I go, well, what do you need? He said, well, the Atlas uh, U30, I think, U30C uh, will work. And I said, well, I've got two of those. You can just have them. 
And so I came home, got them. They were uh, Atlas Red Box. They were uh, war bonnets, and I had added, or, you know, the freight bonnets. So I'd added detail to them. Very good runners. And I said, here, you can have these if they work. Oh, well, no, what do you want in exchange? I said, I said, I don't want anything. I'm never going to put a decoder in them. So enjoy them. Get those uh, uh, passenger units running. So this past Wednesday when we're all meeting for breakfast, when we get ready to leave, you know, and pay the bill and we go out, he goes, here, I got a box for you. I went, okay. So we got there, and here's this big, like, Costco box. Of, <clears throat> he said, you always need passenger cars, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, selected holes in the uh, the fleet I got to fill. He says, here, take these. You'll find some of them. So put them in the back of the Jeep. Get home. Take it out. And what is in there were about a dozen passenger cars. Okay. And this is the neat part of it. Uh-huh. Some of these have never been out of the box. Some of them have had some painting and stuff done up. They're early 1970s vintage Riverasi, back when it was the blue and yellow AHM box. Yeah, I remember those with the cheese cutter wheels and all that stuff. Oh, pizza cutters, yeah, absolutely. Pizza cutters. Horn and hook. Yeah. So I'm looking on the side of this box because I took one of them or two of them were Santa Fe Pullman Green observations. Took them apart yesterday, added a lot of weight to them, put uh, interiors and people in them. Put uh, the proper 36-inch wheels on them, coupler mounts, all that. And I'm looking at the box, and you'll appreciate this. Ready to run, Union Pacific 4884 Big Boy. What? $54.98. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a Big Boy out of the deal? No, that's what... The advertising on their boxes oh, back then. Oh, yeah, that's right. They put advertising around the rim of the boxes, didn't they? Exactly. Here's a Berkshire, $32.98. And then this one, which was so old, it didn't even have the injection-molded plastic insert. It was a cardboard-fabricated uh, holder. And in there is, <laughs> you can get a General Patton M47 tank when they were doing military miniatures for 25 cents. Whoa. <laughs> Deuce and a half dump truck, 39 cents. And then on the back, there was a BL2. I remember when the River Rossi made the BL2 locomotive available in Florida East Coast or Mopac for $8.95. <laughs> what a time warp. Yeah, a total time warp. You know, it's like going back through some of those magazines and seeing all the sales specials for, like, $10 for, like, a brass locomotive or something. It's pretty wild. I never had a problem with the detailer of the the bodies. I mean, there's good rivet detail on here. The truck side frames are, are decent. And you get rid of the pizza cutter wheels and put some. Back then, I was buying 36-inch Katie's because they had the, uh, the simulated swirl marks on the inside from the... Uh, the cooling fins on the wheels, and a couple layers of styrene here and a, a Katie, and they just look good. Well, yeah. Just a few grab arms to uh, cut off and put some, replace them with, with wire. But, you know, I thought, what the heck, I'm doing a secondary train because there's about, in the box were like five baggage cars. This is good. So that was the uh, the big surprise. 
Oh. Of, of the day. And, you know, I went, Yale, <laughs> you must have been carrying this stuff around since you lived in Chicago. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, there is, some, there is some timely dust on it. So, <laughs> so, Jim, did you join us? I don't think he's in yet. Okay, his picture came up on Skype. So, I'm getting ready to upload. Uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you. I can hear you now. Oh, that's better. Oh. It's always better oh, when gosh, it's, it's always better when you plug the microphone into the microphone plug. I think he's right. I think you're onto something. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, on the side of my laptop, there are four holes. There are three headphone holes and one microphone hole. So, and it's a black laptop in a very dark spot. So it's normally ah, let me just stick it in somewhere and hopefully it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. Hey, did you hear the conversation about the uh, Time Warp boxes I got? I didn't hear the beginning of it. Okay. A bunch of AHM cars. Oh, yeah, from the early 70s. And uh, But the cars, you know, it's just telling Chris to go in and get rid of the pizza cutter wheels and body mount Katie's. I put interiors in one, a whole bunch of weight. So they're, they'll go on a secondary passenger train that I was uh, building anyway. So I was getting ready to upload some photos to the Facebook page. I'll do that later on today just to show some of the uh, work we've been doing at this display uh, railroad for an affair with trains. Because we've got, well, it's about 250 feet of mainline track, but there's a maybe 20-foot wall, uh, 14, 15-inch tall. It's all cast stone. And then there's, uh, you know, so you got one main line running along there. Then I, I cut out a canyon, you know, maybe five, six inches wide. And it runs this 20-some feet. So we cast in hydrocal rocks in there using Grand Central Gems molds. And I finally got it done. Uh, there were some tough spots. We actually used pieces of real rock and just painted them and gave them washes to make them look like the hydrocal. You know, instead of making the hydrocal look like the stone, we took the stone and made it look like the hydrocal rock. Got in the selected vegetation. So all we got to do now is pour the water. And then the real messy stuff is done, and then I'll ballast the track and that that whole uh, big thing. But it reminded me of uh, Michael Rose and his you know, term for signature piece. Yeah. And because I had a conversation with him a couple months ago, and, and so I'd just been telling everybody, look, this is our signature piece because this is the first thing you see when you walk into the store. And it does look good. So if Photo Bucket can uh, – Hang tight, I'm going to upload a video that we shot earlier this week of a 30-car uh, steam-powered freight train coming up this 2% grade in front of the rocks, and it's, it's sound. And coincidentally, it, I had started a thread on the DCC portion of the Model Railroad Hobbyist discussion forums on, I think the title I gave it was River Rossi H8 Allegheny. And the problems that I had with this locomotive, just getting it to run, period, and it was brand new. Oh, boy. The store ordered it for me out of uh, Walters, came in, and I ordered it purposely with DC because at that time I hadn't converted my own railroad to DCC. So I just sat there, and then, you know, last fall I got in the tsunami and put it in and wouldn't run, <laughs> would not run. Long story short, after about... 50 hours, and I'd get so frustrated, I would just set it down, walk away, 
Because, you know, you get that urge to just throw it against a wall. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, then that's that's not what you want to do to a $500 locomotive. So I would come back to it. And so eventually I ended up taking this whole thing apart and rework pickups in the tender. And I added some of the wipers I thought were, were too short. So I just soldered in phosphor bronze uh, wire extenders. I wasn't impressed with the quality of the quote-unquote brass mounting bolt that was the electrical conduit from the wipers up to the decoder. So I jumped a wire around it. You know, a little redundancy. I put the, the locomotive in the cradle, and I took the, the boiler top off. Here's their wiring harness in there, and it's got brakes in it, and it's got frays with exposed wires. And I'm going, well, this explains a lot. So then I looked at the connection, you know, for the six-pin plug that goes from the locomotive to the uh, tinder. That's a insulation displacement type clamp. They don't solder them in. They just put it in there and clamp it down. Two of the wires were, were loose. They looked like they were making contact, but when I just gently pulled on them, they came out. And I went, okay, that explains even more. So turned the locomotive up upside down there, took the covers off the drive wheels. One of the wipers was not even installed in the where it should be. So it's just kind of laying there doing nothing. So I just got out my buzzer checker and walked through this whole thing. It took about eight hours because I proofed it every step. But when I got it done, and, you know, I went and bought a new uh, TCS six-pin connector. One of, they've got different types, but this is the one that's got the very flexible wires. Soldered all that in, put it in, and that thing has not missed a beat. Oh, it always helps. It always helps when you act, when like all the, the pickups are like wired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a prime candidate for a uh, battery power there, Paul. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I kept thinking. But you know, I've got several acquaintances that have the same locomotive and do not have, never had any problem. And it went, okay, I understand. I'm not going to condemn River Rossi. This may have been, you know, the old proverbial last job on a Monday or something like that, or they were running out of harnesses and somebody made the decision, you had some line worker, and they put it in and it was just, you know, disastrous. But of course, they had to touch up all the, the weathering and stuff on it. But it's an impressive locomotive. I got 30, 31, 32 weighted uh, transition era cars and flats behind it. It was an effort, but by golly, it sounds good. Oh, is that Titus? No, that was Harrison. Harrison. There you go. Chris and I were trying to uh, remember. Is it Harrison and... Harrison Titus. Oh, it's Harrison and Titus. That was Harrison barking, but that's Harrison and Titus. I deliberately took off their harnesses so they don't jingle. And then in the beginning of the podcast, well, I, you know, when I'm sitting here listening to you, Titus now has his toy, and he's about to start squeaking it. But he was squeaking it, and I had to turn the, the, my mic off. Because it's like like clockwork. Whenever I get onto a podcast, he starts squeaking his toy. <laughs> and now well, he's he looking. He doesn't have a manager. We'd have to pay him royalties. Yeah. Now he's looking at me like, yeah. And your point is what? And you know, we're doing a lot of trees because when you see the photos, when we get them up on Facebook, I mean, above this rock ledge, and I go up another probably eight nine inches, but you know, slate or slope rather hillside, which has got to be covered with trees. We've been making all kinds of, of trees, you know, the speaker wire trees, 
uh, I had about 200 of the really inexpensive injection molded armatures that Woodland Scenics uh, sells. You take them, you soak them in hot water, yeah, because they're pretty much two dimensional. Right. So that you can bend the limbs and that, and you take snips and you cut off all those little, they look like horns, mm-hmm. but they're supposed to be like dead limbs, I guess. And you trim all that crap away. I spray paint mine uh, gray primer. It's a good flat gray because most tree bark is gray unless it's aspens and birch. So, and then put in the spun fiber either from Woodland Scenics or Micromark makes it. And then, you know, hairspray and uh, fine turf medium turf. So we've made a ton of trees. So this customer's in and he's going, he said, do you have any phone wire? And I said, we talking big phone wire? He said, yeah, like eight conductor phone wire in a sheath. And so I got 50 foot roll of it laying there because we used it to put in all the biscuits for the uh, NCE plugins. And I said this, and he says, Go, let me show you this. So he said, how tall you want the tree? And I said, well, I want the trunk to be about two, two and a half inches, and then the top of the tree can be more. So he cuts off maybe a five-inch piece of the phone cable. And then he, because it's in there very loosely, it's not like, you know, a, a shrink wrap, he slides that jacket away and trims it off, and then slides it back, and now those eight wires are exposed. So he just proceeds to very quickly bend them and arrange them, in the shape of what a canopy of a tree would be like. Then he says, now from here, he said, you'll just do your spun fiber and put it on. And I went, good grief, that is just, I'd never seen that before. I was amazed. So I spent an hour or so and did, you know, like 30 of these variations on a theme so they all didn't look like. And then I took a piece of 12-gauge or, uh, yeah, 12-gauge solid wire and shoved it up in the bottom of it and put a little uh, silicone in there, let it set up, and that's my post that I can pierce the scenery with, and it'll hold it straight. And then I shot it gray. And once I put the the foam and the stuff on it, I just had the canopy come down to where it hid the point where, you know, the jacketing stopped and the, the individual wires started out, so I just couldn't see it. And I put a number of those on the uh, the railroad the other day, and golly, it's a good-looking tree. And when you need to create a canopy, I don't know, I I thought it was easier than making puffballs. Because you always, as you look through there, the gap, you still see a trunk structure. Mm. Interesting. And it's just eight-wire phone, coax or whatever. I'm using the wrong term, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah phone Yeah, phone wire. Phone wire. <laughs> I love it when you guys get technical on me. (laughs) So then the other thing, and so I donated a bunch of this stuff. Let me see. I think this was also Woodland Scenics, and it was supposed to be conifers. So these conifers are anywhere from two inches to six inches tall. And that's kind of like, to me, an evergreen, only they they grow in clumps so they they don't have a lot of spread, like necessarily like a spruce tree or a pine tree or whatever. They're more uh, like a column. The branches kind of droop. And the way they're made is this uh, trunk, injection molded, and it's got, yeah, the little basic branch stubs come out, and it's done in a spiral. So if it's denuded, it almost looks like an auger. And it's just got, you can't even see the trunk because there's so much clump foliage on it. That's what they use to populate the greenery with. And I'm going, man, this is just, even for a background tree, this is not a convincing tree. Make it a cell phone tower, Paul. Yes, yes, it could be a cell phone. <laughs> no, except for cell phone tower, 
would look more realistic. So I started pulling off. I felt, you know, with your fingers, you can feel where these little spiky things are. So I just started with my fingers, especially on the bigger ones, pulling all this clump foliage out to expose trunk. And I just worked my way up the tree. The real conifers like that I've seen, it's not a big, even then, it's not a clump at the end. It's it's more thin. It's And so then I would just trim it back, trim it back, till I got a good look. And the first couple of ones, I went, ah, you can see the stairway of branches working their their way up to the top. So you just go in and I looked at photos of real ones, and there's big gaps in the, the branches. I don't know, either damage or... Maybe at that stage you didn't get enough life, so it didn't produce branches equally, you know, up through there uniformly. So I just took my uh, sprue cutters and went in there and trimmed off selective ones so it looked like a photo I had of a real conifer. Then I just hit it with uh, hairspray and, again, just a light dusting of uh, dark green fine turf, and all of a sudden this cheap, ugly tree, which will still be a background tree, all of a sudden takes on a whole new life. And the good thing about the uh, the hairspray is, because you're inevitably going to get fine turf on the trunk, but you can go in with a very small detail brush and just wipe it off. Once it dries, it just comes right off. And so now you're back to a non-vegetated, you know, trunk, same thing on branches. So I've only got about another hundred of those to do. That's <laughs> <laughs> Good time. Nine, nine bottles of beer on the wall, right, Paul? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I take a big, there's a little coffee shop about a mile from the house, so I stop on the way. Yeah, I get an 18-ounce bold black hot, and when I get done to that, you know, get done with the coffee, I go, okay, I'm done with trees today. Time to do something else. But it's just, you know, because of this the size of it, like I said, it's 25 by 18 footprint. Need a lot of stuff. Yeah, so you make do with, I ordered, uh, I think it's either, what is it, Heike? Is that the way you say it? H-E-I-K-I? Uh, I think it's Hecky, but. Okay. Oh, well, no, is, no, is it H-E, it's H-E, H-E-I-K-I, it's Heike, yes. If it's, okay. If it's, if it's, I can never remember, it's H-E-I-K-I, it's Heike. If it's just okay. H-E-K-I, then it's hecky. Is it a Kato or a Kato? Yes, that's right. Aethern or Athern. <laughs> so they make these really inexpensive trees. You buy them in the bulk pack. And it looks like somebody went through a Christmas tree store department and cut all the tips off of a cheap Christmas tree. That's what it looks like. I mean, there's no disguising that this is some kind of spun fiber on a wire frame. But you're cheap. And they come in different sizes, from three quarter up to about six inches. Mm. Yeah, but but can, again, I, can I can I say something though? Sure. What? Yeah. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's good. No, but here's the context. Because you're right. These trees are going three feet away. They are background trees. Okay. Because we've handmade good trees up front. These are the population of, you know, what is uphill and off in the distance. So you take these trees, and they've been packed in the box, and you just kind of rub them with your hand, kind of fluff them. Wrong word, but get them, you know, kind of because they've been scrunched together. And again, you go back with some hairspray, 
and a sprinkling of fine turf, and all of a sudden it looks like the five and six dollar flock trees. But you're, to your point, you're right. When you look at it up close, it's still a cheap tree. But when it's three feet away from you in the background, you know, as long as you don't look at it, you're fine. What your eye is picking up is a mass of trees. It's not seeing because it's still picking up the texture of the ground, you know, the ground cover I've sprinkled on it. So your eye does see texture. But again, yeah, I'd never put them up front. But in a background when I need hundreds of these things, yeah, it's, it's an effective way to stretch the buck. Because we spent a lot of time, and when you see the photos of the rocks in the, on the wall in the canyon, we spent a lot of time making sure that when we filled the molds with uh, the hydrocal, and especially the ones we were going to cast up against the wall, that the consistency was right, made sure the mold was full. So we paid a lot of attention to that because that's 12 inches from your nose. That's what you're looking at. And uh, when we did vegetation in that area, yeah, we paid a lot of attention because it's right up in your face. But the background, you know, it's like, who was the guy in Ohio? Alan uh, McClellan, the guy head to V&O? Yep, Alan McClellan. Yeah, when he came out with the thing, good enough? Yes. Doesn't mean you can be slipshod, but it, to me it meant context. What are you going to spend your time on? Somebody might deride these River Rossies, but, you know, hey, what the outside, once you wait them, get the wheels and it's a part of a train, everybody's looking at the, yeah, the detailed steam locomotive anyway. Perhaps. To a degree. To a degree. degree. Now, one of the comments that he made, because I I have a, oh, I have an Alan Keller video of the V&O from when Alan Keller was doing videos for Model Railroader, which is way, when he was thin, like long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It was the first, it was the first six videos that he did. And uh, unfortunately, it's on beta, so I can't watch it anymore. And his comment, you know, like you said, he came up with the good enough effect. He says, why detail the backside of a structure that no one's ever going to see? Exactly. You know, if no one is – but, you know, herein lies what my my argument to what you have to say. To a point, I understand where you're coming from, and I'm not per se arguing. Just a, a counterpoint to it is people will see that. It's, you know, the difference is, you know, if you've got the backside of a building that's up against the wall and it's a, and it's a direction no one is ever going to see it, uh, and it's, and you're not building it for a contest, you're building it to stick in a spot, you know, then yeah, why, why waste the time? Unless you really feel like doing it, why waste the time building the backside of the structure? However, that other, you know, like with the cars and things, people will see those eventually. You know, that's a, that's a little different and the trees, it's a little different, but I, I can, I can sort of understand. You know, the problem is, is I have particularly good eyesight because I, you know, it hasn't gone to pot yet. <laughs> Maybe I will feel differently about my point of view in six or seven years when I can't see anything anymore. I mean, like, ah, it's good enough. I can't see it anyway. But right now I see everything nice and bright and clear. But no, I, you know, I, I can, if they're like up behind stuff, you know, things are up behind things relatively and you just need some filler. And you're trying to draw people's attention with the stuff in front, then yeah, that makes why waste time unless you, unless you have the time to do it. Well, there's two aspects. One is the cost impact on the on the store. You know, I'd like to go. Hey, Bob, I need about 150 of these uh, Grand Central Gym trees that are about three bucks a piece. That's not going to happen. The other thing, uh, besides being, yeah, I mentioned these trees are about three feet back. They're also at about just under six feet to just 
about six and a half feet high, because that's how big I made this mountain, if you will, because it functions as a scene block so that you can't see the other side of the loop. you got to walk around. It's, uh, it's doing a couple things. Oh, okay. But I understand what you're saying. Yeah, before I take these river Rossies in beside the weights and stuff, yeah, they'll get a lot more attention. But it's, you know, I think the price tag on this one, yeah, RPO car, $4.98 is what was on the, there you go. On the box. And it's, so what's happening up in the uh, the Northeast? Uh, just, uh, and I, and as a matter of fact, while you were talking, I posted the pictures and video on the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. I just came from a operating session at Mike Rose's, uh, yesterday. So, uh, I posted a bu- bunch of pictures and video up on the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast Facebook page. Uh, yeah, finally one of us posted something on it. Yeah. Uh, I apologize. I I get busy doing me stuff. Me too. Me too. I mean, I'm just as much a me three. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went. Okay, I'm going to post these photos and stuff. And then I didn't think it was that big of a file, but uh, Photo Buckets tried for 30 minutes to upload this uh, MP4 video, and uh, then it finally said, "Not doing it." <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna, I'll try after a while. Yeah, this uh, the longest video is seven minutes long, so it's not. Oh, good heavens! I'm talking about 35 seconds of this really this steam train. Oh yeah, wow! The yeah, steam no. train just coming up the grade. Oh wow! Yeah, because I did a, um, you know, I did a video with my iPhone while I was running a train on Mike's layout, and it's seven minutes long, and it and it's uploaded to Facebook already. Yeah, Paul, you want to just uh, directly upload that video to Facebook instead of playing yeah. around on a on a photo bucket. Yeah. Okay. I've never done that, but I'll, they've got an instruction how-to page somewhere? It's on the same page. It's in the same I – di- I just did it with my phone. So, oh, okay. And, and all you do, I mean, because it, uh, on the phone, it just comes up and says, oh, wh- wh- which fo- – you know, Share? Which, well, when you, yeah, you uh, yeah, share photo. You know, you have two buttons. You can say comment or share or post or share photo or post photo, whatever it says. And it, it just comes up with the list of everything that's on your phone. You say, you know, what do you want to choose? And you click on the video and it it takes a, two or three minutes. But, yeah, you might want to just do that because I, I just posted a seven and a half minute video and a two and a half minute video in the amount of time that we've been talking on the phone. So. I'll, I'll try posting a video myself. I have something from a... Our last setup in Bakersfield last weekend, so... Good grief, we are going from feast, or going to feast from famine here. I might as well, it's at least it's something. Yeah, going from, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I would, I don't know how interested people are going to be in the Proto 48 stuff I've been doing, but um, uh, I posted it a bunch of other places, but I had a bunch of stuff print out, uh, and there's Titus and the snake. He's going to start squeaking the snake, and he's looking at me now. He's like, yes, I am. Titus the snake. Yep. Let's see. Anyway. Chris, do you have one uh, of the new Cotto baggage cars? I don't. In fact, it, I, the only thing that I have of the Superliner train I, I, is pretty much a locomotive. Um, I, I, I would have to get about nine Cotto cars, and then I'm looking also at a couple other things here just to support, you know, the 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 step-up. Yeah. I think it was the coach, the coach dorm. It's an older school uh, 1980s Superliner train, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, I like the Kato model because it has just the Kato engineering and also like the trucks on the on the Superliner. Um, other than that, I, I think the Walters one is pretty much superior as far as like detail. But me being, I, I just really like the the Kato engineering. I think it, it you know, it, it's one of those things that was really designed to run well. So mm. I was going to swing that way for this for this train I'm working on. Cool. Yeah, Kato I think is just overall with basically everything they make except for perhaps the SD40-2. Uh, when they changed something perfectly good to something that wasn't, and then they went back to the way they were building it in the first place. Um, but, you know, it's just a superior product, just to just about everything. What are you talking about on the uh, Dash 2? The mid-production Dash 2? Yeah. Uh, they, they changed the power pickups on the truck. Oh, you mean that uh, strip of uh, phosphor yeah. bronze under the running board? Yeah, the N scale pickup design and an HO scale didn't quite scale up to their expectations, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah it just did not work. This one, uh, I've got it because I had to cut the frame down to put a speaker in it. The, well, the speaker I wanted to put in it. And I looked at that and I went, well, that explains why this thing used to start and stop a lot on yeah, when I was running at DC, I went, I'm going to do this differently when I rebuild this with the decoder in it. Right. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that, what people ended up doing was just, you know, wire it with wire, you know, just yeah. rewire wire in and instead. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, so when people ask, oh, is that a mid-production SD40-S2? Yes, I don't want it. Yeah. You know, well, I've got one of their earlier uh, first-generation SD40s, and it's a little light compared to the later models, but it just never misses a beat electric. Right, right. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of people uh, that are, you know, on the diesel list and, and things like that, that, that he just, carte blanche, he just takes everything out. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. He'll remove the motors, put in Cato motors and trucks in it. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. He just take, takes them out and puts in um, Cato motors and trucks just because they're that 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 much. That, I mean, their quality you, because you can take a Cato Cato that was made or Cato was made fifteen twenty years ago and run it with one that was made five years ago and they run the same. You don't have to do speed matching. You don't have to do anything. They just run the same. Um, so it just shows you the quality control that they have now. Uh, Either one of you have any experience with the new one with the power trucks or? No, it's been pretty interesting AMD. seeing how that's been developing. I think uh, there were some mold design issues on that thing that people kind of rejected, but it was an interesting concept. I like the idea of having an open body. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that, I think that's kind of how this whole thing with battery operation and radio control kind of perpetuated was the this new Kato design where the motors are mounted onto the or part of the truck rather than, you know, a central motor in the middle of the body. If everyone we get into the store, because uh, we've had the, you know, the current paint scheme, the blue wave, and then we've 
got in a number of the uh, heritage units. They just they don't stay on the shelf. They go. And we have DCC'd several of them with tsunamis. And the only negative comment is that I've ever heard, and it was just kind of rendered as a no, by the way, the motors are a little more noisy than what you expect from a Kado. Okay. That's nothing about how well they pull or anything like that. The guy goes, one guy goes, yeah, he said, I was surprised to actually hear the motor. But, you know, he had sound put in. It's a moot point because it's the sound over overrode it. But that's the only thing negative I've heard. Right. Hmm, interesting. See, the thing is, what what, you know, comments that have been made is, you know, when they see on a, on on that type of locomotive, you know, it, it doesn't make as much of a difference because you're never going to be pulling that many cars with it. Mm-hmm. It's never going to have the opportunity to pull 50 cars. You know, it's going to pull yeah. 18, maybe, yeah. and even and if you're pulling 18, you've got two or three of these things. Um, so it's never going to pull very much weight. So that was what one of the concerns was is, okay, that's fine for a passenger locomotive, but would it work in a freight locomotive? Mm-hmm. And where the nice thing about the Caddo mechanisms and the Caddo motors is they just run forever. They'll right. just run and 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 then run some more and then drop them on the floor, put them back on the ground, put them back on a track and they still run. The, yeah. You know, the shell may be cracked, but the engine still runs. Uh, yeah, that's how good the mechanism is. And, um, so that was what one of the concerns was, was, okay, that's fine. But when it is able to pull X a number of cars for X amount of time, then I'll believe, then I'll believe it, you know? So right. I'm not saying one way or the other, cause I don't have, well, I'll, I'll say, you know, I don't have a horse in the, in the race one way or right. the other. I don't really care. I'm just curious. Why don't you just fly me out? <laughs> Hey, Chris, let's do this for the uh, proto-meet. The Jim you know, we're going to have to do a sponsorship, you know, to get so Jim. Like, could, maybe what we should do is do like a, a Kickstarter yes, event. Get, yes. get Jim Lincoln to join the West Coast guys for an RPM meet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I, can, so I can take measurements of the Superliner to make the part. <laughs> no, I don't see why that would be an issue. I just don't have measurements. Oh, I can so, get all that. Okay. Nope. I think it would be far more interesting to fly me out. A little more expensive, but... <laughs> uh, do I detect a hint? Yeah, uh, yeah. I do. I, you know, yeah. You know, it, it is what it is. You know, I don't have a lot of time. It would only be for a weekend, so it's like... I'll ha- you know, I'll happily pay to stay somewhere. Actually, no, it's California. Maybe not. I shouldn't say that. Well, but it's out in San Bernardino. That's... You know, 60, 70 miles outside of L.A., I believe, so you, it's not quite like staying downtown L.A. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more cost-effective to be out there. And if you had to, you could run up the road up towards... Uh, uh, Barstow? Yeah, Barstow, and uh, yeah. what's the pass? My mind just went blank. Oh, there, you know, there's a... Up five. Cajon or? Yeah. Yeah, there's Cajon right there. There you go. You can camp out right there over at Cajon, man. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, just absolutely wonderful. (laughs) It's Uh, been pleasant weather here, 70 to 80 degrees, so I don't think you'll be froze out of there or anything. 
Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. My my idea my idea of camping is the Motel Six. <laughs> so, so well, I could, just to give I you an idea on that special deal on the uh, the couch in my wife's apartment. It's a, ah, you know, but we have to leave. You have to leave a little bit early because I'm thinking budget wise, Greyhound bus. Ah, no, so, that ain't happening. Well, maybe if we get enough have, on this Kickstarter thing, uh, we can fly them out first class, you know, nonstop. There you go. <laughs> you know, all, all amenities included and uh, throwing a couple of Railfan magazines to pass the time, you know. There you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I just get, no, actually pay the $5,000 or whatever they'd want to call, charge you for the Wi-Fi connection so they could watch Trainmaster TV. <laughs> yeah, you can catch up on their way over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they want to charge you like twenty five bucks for a Wi Fi connection for a three hour flight. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. I think Southwest is only like eight bucks, and it's good for all day. So if you've got multiple flights, multiple planes, it's it's good all day. I believe it's eight bucks. Really? Well, it's eight. Okay, it may be eight bucks, but still, you know, I'm thinking three hour flight, eight bucks. I think not. Oh. It's not that important. Oh, Jim, Jim, Jim! <laughs> it's not that important. I can. It can wait. You know. It can wait till you get to the hotel and have free Wi-Fi. I mean, maybe I would think differently on a flight to Australia. Yeah. But, but <laughs> a three-hour flight to Florida? Nah. You know. No. Well, so which is basically which is basically the distance I ever go. So. My wife and I went down to uh, Mardi Gras, and it was nice and chilly, wasn't it? You know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday were beautiful. Monday it was cooler, but it was still dry and and sunny. Uh, Tuesday we were supposed to fly out. Uh, you know, Fat Tuesday. And our connection was to Houston. Houston had an ice storm. They don't de de you know de ice planes. So it poured rain and never got out of the forties. So we pretty much didn't get out of our pajamas till briefly to run down the street to Manning's for lunch, and uh, we had room service for dinner. It was thirty four degrees when we went outside to get in the cab the next morning. <laughs> to fly nice. out. But I had never done Mardi Gras before. That's always been a thing that that my wife loves to do. And I went, okay, this is really neat. All right, cross that off the bucket list. And she goes, well, this is where I want to retire to. I said, you mean move out of Phoenix kind of retire to? And she goes, yeah. And I went, okay. Where? Phoenix is where everybody goes to retire. Well, yeah, but it's the weather here. I mean, you know, yeah, it gets hot in the summer, but it doesn't get cold. So I said, you know, where do you want to live? And she goes, well, she said, maybe the Garden District, and that's where one of her friends lives. And those are early 1900s or late 1800s houses. And it's a beautiful area and stuff, and I'm going, but... Yeah, there's not enough room. And 
I said, so we're Mannings and a number of these really cool night spots and stuff right down in the warehouse district. And I said, these are condos above all these restaurants and stores. She goes, yeah. I said, how about living down here? And I said, but here's the key. We're not buying some two-bedroom thing. This has got to be a big enough that there's a big train room in there. I said, I don't care if it's undeveloped space or whatever, but it's got to have a train room. Otherwise, I'm not signing on the papers <laughs> to leave Phoenix. She goes, well, I think we can make this work. And I said, all right. I said, that's the uh, the, the deal breaker there, you know, kind of like John Kerry's uh, Middle East initiative where he wants the, the PA to recognize Israel and he wants Israel to give up half of Jerusalem, you know. Well, train room is my equivalency to that. Mm. Make it happen. Give me a framework and we'll start talking. Yeah, I don't know if I go... You know, Phoenix, I, I don't know, Phoenix to New Orleans. Mm. Well, here's the thing. Well, you yeah. go from a dry heat to a very moist Oh, yeah. If it ain't very moving, moist. it's got hold on it there, babe. Yeah. You know, it's okay. If she's happy, then I'm I happy suppose. as long as I've got something where I can take all these trains. You might to put a subcondition to that, Paul. Must have air conditioning of the most powerful variety ever. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did that here in Phoenix. Uh, like I want, I want to be able to make ice cubes in the living room. Yeah. In the air, I want to throw water into the air <laughs> and watch it and have them come and have them come down ice cubes. One thing I did notice is we were coming from the airport and just driving around different places. A lot of railroad action down there. Oh yeah. Yeah, I saw a lot of CSX oh, yeah. and uh, UP stuff going on. Well, there is that. Yeah. Uh, actually, Paul, my question, do you guys sell O-Scale? No, we don't. We order it in special. Uh, okay. Just because... There's that, not enough call. It's not so much that. It's just there's X amount of space in this store. Yeah. And the historic volume of business had been N-Scale and H-O. Yep. So when you track, the previous owner did, tried to do Lionel and O-Scale to some degree. And it, you know, when you look at the data of, of what was sold, it was just uh, not worth it because up until now, Roy's train world over Mesa, I think, carried that. And, but Roy's okay. is closing. So uh, that means it's yeah. just us. I've heard about that. Yeah. So mm. it's. I will say Bob has uh, one of the best equipped uh, as far as depth of product and uh, breadth of product of stores that I've been in. You know, I go to Whistle Stop every time I go to Pasadena, and that gentleman over there has a lot. Uh, Bob probably has twice as much in the way of detail part as uh Whistle Stop. Uh, but, you know, Whistle Stop, if you're looking for brass, he is your place, one of those places you go, because he's got one side of the building is brass. But, you know, I went in there, I was looking for some KD cars. I like the KD transition uh, box cars and stuff for the steam freight. And we don't, we don't stock that. By golly, Whistle Stop must have had, you know, Ten different cars, styles, and numbers, and three or four of each. So I was able to find exactly what I wanted 
Okay, we'll come back in a minute and uh, have that conversation uh, with Jim Lincoln here about Shapeways. But I want to encourage you, go to the MRH Magazine uh, website and subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, the benefit for you is you'll get reminder emails from Model Railroad Hobbyist Magazine. Hey, new issues out. Hey, this is of interest on the discussion forums. Here's an article you might like. Your email address is, is safe, it's secure. We don't pass it out. But we ask you to subscribe. And there's a, there's a business reason for it. It's still going to be, the magazine is still free to you. Uh, I subscribed back in uh, 2010, right after uh, Joe started the magazine, and I started reading it even before I started doing the podcast because it wasn't a part of my schedule at the time, and it gave me that reminder. Oh, good. Another copy of the magazine's out. I can go read it. I can go find out more. So I just want you to go there and just subscribe. Again, it costs you nothing. Nothing's at risk, but we will appreciate it, and you'll continue to get great articles uh, how-tos, embedded video, all the things that have revolutionized the model railroad media industry. So appreciate it. Go subscribe. Otherwise, I know who you are and I will hunt you down. Okay, Jim's on, uh, and we're going to discuss a couple couple things. One is Shapeway. Shapeways. Okay, Shapeways, have it your ways. But first, I want to let uh, everybody know that Mr. Lincoln has been posting a lot of neat video on the uh, Facebook page, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast, of some recent obsessions with uh, the likes of Mike Rose, Scotty Mason, and uh, other people. Mike Confalone. Mike Confalone is in there. And it's really neat video of some obsession. I have uh, posted a photo and a video of the Allegheny uh, H8 that uh, is on the – there's a, a forum thread on it in DCC about the problems and issues with it. I think it's called River Rossi H8. But it's all corrected. It's one of the sweetest-running locomotives. So there's a short video of it coming up a Rocky Canyon – and then there is a blog, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast blog. There's already been a number of postings with questions, queries. Mr. Fugit has gotten involved and answered a lot of those. Some of it is above my pay grade, but uh, things are shaping up a lot of different ways for you guys, you listeners, to give uh, Jim and Chris and I feedback. But we're sensitive people, so keep it clean and non-hurtful. I hate it when these guys weep. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, Steve, uh, tell us about Shapeways. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was watching one of Lionel's video segments this morning before I went to the store, and I thought, ah, we haven't busted Jim's chops recently about uh, being Steve. You know, everybody's Steve, so it's not just me. Mm-hmm. To, 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 to Lionel, everybody is Steve. <laughs> so who? Tell us about Shapeways. Um, well, Shapeways is uh, it is a 3D printing service um, that, by means of if you make uh, 3D designs in uh, either SketchUp, which is a free pro- program by Google or any one or of a number of other 3D modeling programs, 
If you save them as stereolithography files, uh, .stls, you can upload them to uh, Shapeways, uh, www.shapeways.com, and uh, they'll print them out for you. And uh, they're uh, this is a, just so everybody knows. This is a discussion that uh, Chris, I, and uh, Paul had the last time we recorded, but unfortunately. Chris and I knew what we were talking about, and we were talking about it in that way, <laughs> so nobody else could understand it. So, including me, I freely admit it, it just went over my head. So now I'm. I, I Paul is attempting to get me to uh, re-discuss this whole thing in a more um, straightforward and understandable fashion, which may or go ahead. You can say it. Dumb it down. Dumb it down for me. Which may or may not be possible. So, uh, I just finished my thought. You put in the dumb it down. Uh, I did not. But you agreed too quickly. No, I did not say anything. I just, I just finished my thought. You can, you can come to whatever conclusions you choose to come to. Okay. Well, I'm concluding. We're digressing. Uh, That that is the important thing about a podcast: is we have the opportunity to digress. So you use a 3D modeling software. Most of the easiest way to get into it would be Google SketchUp because it's free. There's quite a bit of learning curve to it. Well, with any 3D modeling software, there's a bit of a learning curve to it. If you have any CAD uh, experience, it helps. And you're able to design. Basically, you can go into a, uh, you know, for our purposes, you can go into the railroad plan book. And for instance, I have for sale on my Shapeway store, I have for sale a number of tie plates, hook tie plates, uh, guardrails, shacks, all sorts of things. And basically, if you can think it, you can measure it out, you can design it, you can print it. Now, that is the short, short version of it. That is not, however, entirely true because there are certain limitations and uh, limitations put upon each printed product by each material that you choose. There are different um, specifications. And Shapeways keeps changing that because they may or may not have uh, bad prints and I'm guessing that bad renders, whatever you want to call it, and people will send them back and they want their money back. Well, so they keep changing the specifications. So things that that printed for me two years ago may or may not print today, even though they were perfectly fine two years ago. I know the machine will do it, but they just don't want to anymore. So those are things you need to remember about Shapeways. But the cool thing about Shapeways is that in, in, in scales that are not common, you can get stuff. Or if you happen to model in TT scale, you can design a product and have it printed and have the thing that you can't get available. And it doesn't require you to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in tooling costs to get it injection molded, which you may or may not be able to do because, you know, how many people are going to buy a TT item? So you would never be able to amortize the tooling costs, whereas you could print one out for a couple hundred bucks and then you have what you want. And so that's the benefit of Shapeways. This is the short, short version of it. And if you go on to shapeways.com and search for model railroad items, one of the most common items 
it seems, on Shapeways are model railroad items. They're a thing. People have done some amazing work with 3D models. And no, they are not inexpensive, some of these items. But for instance, there's a, um, there's an HO scale, extremely well detailed C39-8 shell available that you can print. It's about 80 bucks, $85, something like that. But there is basically full steam locomotive boilers. There's an entire O-scale GP38-2. Now, that is not $93. That's more like $700. But it, because these things are printed out, and you have to pay for the cost of the material. So, and you pay for the material in cubic centimeters. So, however much that takes, then that's what it takes, and that's how much it costs. Are these people in the United States? Uh, they may or may not be. Uh, oh, oh, no, the Shapeways, yes. Shapeways is the United States. It prints out of New York. Most of the stuff is out of New York. I think they have other locations. I believe the design teams are in the Netherlands, I believe. But it's printed in New York. So, you know, if you get something and it's, you know, uh, UPS to you, normally two-day UPS from New York City. That's how long it takes for me to get my stuff when I order it. Uh, They have some new options now where even though – According to their super safe specifications, an item that you drew up won't print. It will fail. Uh, you can now tell them print it anyway. And that's I think that's what the option is called, is print it anyway. And okay. you lose the option to return it should it not be satisfactory. Now, up until this point, I didn't realize you had that option, um, So, which is a novelty. And so I don't really care whether they whether the thing prints out or not, I just, you know, want to know, you know, how good it is a lot of times. I just want it. And so there is an item that I just drew up that failed that I will try to reprint using the print it anyway option. Because I'm fairly certain according to old specifications, it'll be fine. It just, it does, won't. It, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to guarantee it. We'll put it that way. And one of the things you lose from Shapeways is you do not have the ability to specify to them the direction the item is printed in. And for anybody who knows anything about 3D printing, they know that that can be an important thing because it depends, depending on which way the item is configured when it is printed, it depends on how the layer, layers come out. So how the layer lines are, because each one of the, it's a layer that's, that's laid out, you know, it, it's a layer of resin that's laid down and cured by ultraviolet light or however they're, they're, they're doing it. And uh, so there is always going to be a certain distance between the layers that can look like steps. And this can be irritating or it can not be. It depends on how the, pro- the, how the item is oriented when it's printed. You do not have the ability to tell them, I want it printed this way. And they are never going, uh, it's been asked, and they're never going to give users that ability. Why, why would that be? What? Is the constraint for them? Don't know. Oh, the constraint is they want to be able to configure the parts in the machines any way they want to to increase. Uh, because when your part gets printed, your, yours is not the only part getting printed at a time. Oh, gotcha. So they're batching them or nesting them together? They're batching things together. So they want the ability to put stick them in the machine whichever way happens to work best in that particular shot. Okay. So that's why... That's why they're able to keep the cost down is because, I mean, you can go to other services and have your, and give them, tell them, I want it printed this way, but it also is probably about four times the price. So 
or it's between two and four times the price. So those are the things you need to remember uh, when you're dealing with Shapeways. But it is an interesting thing, just an interesting thing to do is to go on to Shapeways and search for model railroad products. And there's all sorts of stuff. You'll find the things in my store. You'll find N-scale stuff, Z-scale boxcar, full boxcars, O-scale boxcars, O-scale locomotives, TT locomotives, you know, ON3 locomotive, anything. Anything you can imagine. If somebody decides they want one and they're willing to spend the time to draw it, then they can upload the model of Shapeways and print the one item that they want instead of hoping that a manufacturer will produce it someday. Okay. So it, it allows you to get one-off items. But there's things like, you know, you don't have to talk about, you know, boxcars and stuff. There's dumpsters, you know, little things. Dumpsters, stop signs, signal heads, anything you can imagine. Anything you can, if you can draw it, you can print it, basically. Not not entirely, but basically. Because you run into the limits of the, you, you run into the, the limits of the materials that the things are printed in. So some things will print quite well. And one of the things that I run into uh, with Shapeways is that there are things in Shapeways, the specifications in Shapeways are different for a detail as opposed to a wall, an unsupported wall, which is just a wall in space. So if you think of a wall is the web of a rail, that's a wall. Okay. Okay, and that has to be a certain thickness. So if you print a rail out to scale thickness, it won't print in O scale because you have too large of an unsupported wall that's too thin. Whereas you do the same thing in HO, it prints. You can print it to scale in HO, but you can't do it in O. The reason why is because in, in HO, it's a detail. In O, it's a wall. And the specifications are different. And so that's what I've found. I don't know about S scale because S scale is right in the middle of the two. So I'm guessing you're, it would probably be leaning more towards O than HO. Because the bigger it gets, the more it becomes a wall. You know, and the smaller it gets, the more it's a detail. Understand. You know, so, and then the things you have to think about are because you're paying for the volume of the material, you have to design things or you should design things so they are hollow. So if you're designing a, for instance, um, a signal shed, when I say a signal shed, I mean a, the signal hardware shed that you see on the side of the tracks, which are these metal huts. I, I designed one of those that I've never had printed because I designed it so fine that there's things that won't render, that they won't print out. So they're, they're so fine in O scale. So uh, you have to make the item hollow. Otherwise, a, you know, a little relay shed which you, know, you think in HO scale, you can buy one of those for eight bucks or ten bucks or whatever it is. In in O scales, two hundred and seventy two dollars when it's solid. Holy moly! Uh, or more, you know. And so I had uh, a great story when I was first learning SketchUp because I didn't understand how things should be drawn. I didn't understand what was necessary. I didn't understand how to make good watertight models. And if you know anything about 3D modeling, you'll understand what watertight means. But And if you want me to explain that, I will. But there have been articles in Model Railroad Hobbyists that do talk about 3D modeling and the, the need for items to be watertight. Uh, it's a – well, since I'm getting into it, I'll explain it. It basically means is that if you were to fill your model with electrons, 
the electrons won't don't flow out. So you're creating cavities? No, you're 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 creating a solid object. So you, you want you want the walls to be solid. So even though the item is hollow, so I want to you know you want to make the walls say two inches thick. I, and when I say two inches thick, I mean scale two inches thick. Because in SketchUp in particular, the the thing with Google SketchUp, which is the free 3D modeling program, it is designed to draw architecture. It is not designed to draw models. Therefore, it doesn't deal with the sizes that we, it doesn't draw the things that we need to draw well in the size that we need to draw them. So if you draw an object in O scale, SketchUp has severe problems with that. It obviously doesn't have a, a problem with an O scale square, but it does have a problem with an O scale curve. You know, so when the when the the, the curve, the arc, or whatever is below a quarter of an inch, it has serious issues dealing with that because it's not designed to do that. We make it do things it's not designed to do. So you just have to learn to work around that, which is you you draw things full scale. You know, you get if you know you want to draw a relay shed, you go to a relay shed, you measure it, you draw it, full scale, six feet by six feet. That's what you do, and, and then. And then once you draw it, you scale it down, and then you just scale it to the appropriate dimension, and bing, it works. It, it can't draw the items in O-scale, but it can make them O-scale, if that makes any sense. Uh, you can't do any modifications to it once it's in that, once it's that size. But even if you look at tutorials for SketchUp, when, when they say you want to put, say you wanted to put threads on a nut, a half-inch nut, or not a half-inch nut, well, half-inch bolt, you want... You wanted to draw a half-inch bolt? Well, you can go in. There's a tutorial on how to do it. Well, what they say is explode the size of that 100 times. Increase the size of that 100 times, even from full size. Do it 100 times bigger, and then make the render the rendition, and then shrink it back to the appropriate, to the half-inch bolt. So it's, is it doing a lot of extrapolation? If I'm going to go in there and take six-inch bolt and draw it in a theoretical to 100 times that size. Yep. And then it's going to shrink down. So it's it's almost as if it understands it better if it's enormous. Correct. And then it can better extrapolate from those data points down right. to the size you want to draw on at. Correct. Because the main thing is SketchUp is designed to draw a house designed to draw, you know, a fire station. It's designed to draw very large structures. It's not designed to draw a half-inch bolt. Okay. You know, that's not, and we and we as modelers are forcing it to do something it isn't really designed to do. And you can do workarounds, and that's fine. And you can get very acceptable models with it. But you just have to learn, you just have to learn its idiosyncrasies and how it works. There are other more powerful 3D modeling programs, but they're also reciprocally far more expensive. I am, I've just gotten a version of SolidWorks, which is the premier one, and I'm working in that. And uh, it's night like just to say, if you get used to using SketchUp, which is a which is is a nice program, I've used to it, I enjoy it. When you go from SketchUp to SolidWorks, it's like getting out of a Cessna and climbing into an F-15. Two totally different animals. 
<laughs> so the basic principles apply, but two totally different animals. You can get a mu- you can get a much better model out of SolidWorks quicker than you can with, you know, you spend a lot of time working around stuff in SketchUp, which it which SolidWorks just does. Anyway, getting away from Shapeways. Uh, Shapeways is one is one means of getting your items printed. There are other 3D printing services out there that are more money. Shapeways is the least expensive. There are other, I mean, as Chris and I were talking about just Saturday, I was into Staples to get ink for my inkjet printer, and there was for sale at Staples a 3D printer for 1300 a desktop. Wouldn't it this week that Hewlett-Packard made a... Uh... Uh, press release about in the near future they would be releasing, if I understood the the press release, a home 3D printer that they were working on bringing that technology in a very capable yet affordable, at affordable price point, make it available. So you're already telling me somebody's doing that. Yeah, it's not that is not was not Hewlett Packard, and I mean there are other ones I have had. Uh, a gen, a friend of mine, uh, he printed an, an O-scale boxcar end for me you know, on a 3D printer that he has on his desktop. And it was more money than this one, but it also gave better resolution than Shapeways. So, uh, but it, there's, you know, a learning curve and all these other things. So it's, it's not the same as Shapeways. <laughs> and you can hear the voice in the background. Yeah, who's dying in the background? They're not dying. It's just uh, Titus and Harrison are fighting. So, and there's not a whole lot I can do about it and talk at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, they seem to have calmed down a little. Okay. Um, so that's great. Just give it a little bit of a little bit of you know. Uh, other people, you have to do mongoose. You just yeah. you just have to put up with the two little weasels that I have. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, anyway. So yeah, so he has a 3D, uh, what's called a Form One 3D printer. Uh, it does a very nice job, but you know, this he gets better resolution out of it, but it's also a little more finicky than some of the other ones that are available. So because it's a different process, but because it's a different process, he gets better resolution out of it. Well, the medium that this uh, that these 3D printers are laying down, that they're using to create the three-dimensional object, what is it? Uh, it's like a PVC plastic. It's a resin, essentially. Okay. Um, can you print in color, or does everything come out beige? Uh, you can choose a color, yes. Oh, but it is a color. It's not going to do logos and everything on there for you. You're still going to paint it. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, no, right. no, you're not going to, definitely not. You, and, yet, you know, most of these things you're going to have to surface anyway. You're going to have you know. I was amazed that this boxcar in, which is a Berwick, a relatively modern Berwick boxcar in, which is a sine wave. It's a very even sine wave. Yeah. He made it print so well that one of the complaints about 3D printing is that you get those little steps in curves. And it came out so well there are no steps. It's just a perfect sine wave. Maybe a little bit of light sanding, but I think I could get away with it. it I mean, it wasn't a finished... It was not in any way meant to be a finished product. It was he wanted to do a test, and I said, here, test this. I want to see if this will actually work, because the finished product will have, you know, location holes for ladders and grab irons and all that other stuff. 
and this was just the side. It was, you know, just the sine wave with the, the sides on it. So, and, uh, it came out really, really nice. Whereas these $1,300 ones that are going to go on your desktop, they don't have anywhere near that type of resolution. They'll do a lot of things and probably be suitable for a lot of people's needs depending on, you know, you'd have to learn how to print them in that machine to mitigate the whole layer issue. Okay. But you could probably get very acceptable parts if you knew and were able to manipulate the parts on the on the print platform. So Shapeways is just one means of it. it, it you know, it's kind of like – and what was happening with me and Chris is, is – uh, uh, well, the last time we recorded was it's very much like YouTube. You see one video and you look at something else and then you look at something else and you look at something else. And you can get sucked right into all the model railroad options, the things that people have put up to be printed. Some of them are available to be printed that you can download uh, and have printed and sent to you. Some are not. Some are private, but you can look at them anyway. Okay. Because when I upload a product, when I upload a model, I will I make it private, not for sale. And once it prints properly, then I will make it for sale because I don't want to get the I don't want to get the email saying, "Oh, my thing didn't print. Uh, what happened?" You know, they get their money back. So it's not like you put your money in and you never see it again. They Shapeways refund your money immediately if something fails. But, you know, you get all excited to have your Code 100 tie plates, which nobody else makes, and then it doesn't work. You know, and then people get upset. So I had to redesign the Code 100 tie plates uh, because they were consistently failing. But I have things like hook tie plates for... O scale, so you can. There's a particular type of tie plate that goes underneath frogs, uh, turnout frogs, and uh, nobody made them. So I went online to uh, one of the, uh, believe it or not, a a frog manufacturer, and they had the specifications for their hook tie plates. I just copied it, made 3D models of it, put it onto a sprue, printed it out at Shapeways. People have used them and love them. You know, uh, and if you want to do that. You know, it'll cost X amount of dollars to print that part. And then Shapeways, when you create a shop, uh, to upload products, you do have to create a shop. And uh, they allow you to put a little bit of a markup if you so desire. So you can make a little bit of money. I, th- I think I've made about 20 bucks. But you know what? It was no money. out. It was just time out of my life, not money out of pocket. So that's the one nice thing about Shapeways is you can make something that you want, maybe that other people want, and that other people will order. You'll make a little bit of money, and it's there's no money out of your pocket for that, which is – that's one of the benefits of using Shapeways. The more you use it, the more you can get frustrated at it. Uh, there are some people that I know who have used it and now are looking for other means to get their stuff printed because they can, just, they can be very aggravating. And it can be a matter of, you you know, you click, you know, print. They say, no, I'm not going to do it. Print. No, I'm not going to do it. Print. Okay, we'll do it this time. You didn't do anything to the model. It's just what happens is it goes, and the guy standing at that machine that's going to print your product that particular day, if you are right on the edge of the specifications, he may look at it and say, I don't feel like dealing with that. And say, no. And, And they have the ability to do that. Even though you know it'll print, it just may not print in every single orientation, if that makes any sense. And so the person running the machine actually has to make a modifications to what, he, to what he's doing so the item will print. And some guys don't want to do that. It may be Friday night, and they want to go home, and they want to plug the thing into the machine and go home. <laughs> you know, so they don't want to fight with it. 
and so they just they just kick it back to you. And then you can press a button and it'll go to Shapeways and next time it'll print. Who knows? I you know have you know, and that that's one of the downfalls to using that type of service. But then again, it's two to four times less money than other options. I I don't know if that answers all your questions. Uh, well, now I know a lot more about it than I did after we talked on uh, whatever day the other session. Right. Yeah, whatever day that was. It's sad. I can't remember yeah. what day it was either. Okay, no, uh, because it intrigued me enough that I thought listeners are going to want to know about this and know that it's out there. I mean, it, it very much is cutting edge technology. And it's not going to do everything you want to. It, it's just not going to do it. You have to be able to learn 3D modeling software. But if you know anything about CAD, then it's not that much of a jump. To some people it is, other people it's not. Or you can hire somebody to do the 3D, you know, modeling for you. Here I am. You know, anybody wants to get in contact with me and have, you know, pay me to model something for them, and then you know, get it to the point where where Shapeways or another service will print it for them. I'm willing to do that. How do you search for it on the web, these services? I, w I would say 3D, 3D printing services. Uh, let me see if that works. I'm in process of learning. I, I paid money to get a online service to uh, learn SolidWorks because it is different enough from Shape SketchUp that I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time fighting with it, which, which is what I did with SketchUp. I fought with it for a month three months to basically learn. I mean, I was able to, I was able to draw a tie plate relatively quickly, but a tie plate is a very simple object. I could just, I could draw up a tie plate in either SolidWorks or SketchUp probably in 10 minutes now and have it be printable. You know, I, I can make a model so that it prints without even thinking about it. Whether it's a viable product or not is another thing because drawing a tie plate is one thing. Drawing it so you can amortize the cost of the tie plate so that it's not five dollars per tie plate is can be tricked that that's where the trickiness and the knowledge comes in is, is designing it to be printed you can design an object but that doesn't mean it's going to print very well uh, a couple of years ago in the building where an affair with trains is there was a uh, an architect who you alluded to a while ago made three-dimensional architectural models, primarily for large builders, but also custom builders. And the 3D printer he had was in one of the rooms by itself, and it struck me the of the size, what you'd use in a, a large office, you know, like a big 3M or HP that had multiple trays and, yeah, just this massive machine. The owner, Bob, gave him a... Uh, Intermountain boxcar, whatever software he was using, uh, he made the drawing of it just to run it through the CAD printer just to demonstrate what level of detail and so forth it could be. And when he did it, he included the grab irons and the handbrake chain uh, when he was doing the CAD files. And the printer printed those items out in se as separate pieces but yet attached to the body. Mm -hmm. So the, the grab irons were standing off of the body, right. and the handbrake train was hanging down from the, it was a car with a high-mounted uh, handbrake, and I was just blown away. But it was, uh, I think uh, they said it was, a, even in 2010, was a printer north of $20,000. Right. But I thought, holy moly, because uh, it was a sheath-side boxcar, and... 
all the individual lats of wood were just, I mean, it was perfect. Golly, it was impressive. I think Bob's still got it sitting in the office somewhere. Yeah, let's see. There is um, I Materialize, Shapeway, Sculptio, the UPS store, Print Your 3D Models, 3D Printer Hub. You know, but these are going to be Ponico, print, Printo 3D, Print the 3D Home. Yeah, that's all sorts of different. But, you know, generally speaking, iMaterialize is relatively, and that's i.materialize.com, and materialize is I-S-E, not I-Z-E. It's uh, relatively similar in price to Shapeways, although slightly more expensive. I have not tried them to know, you know, how well they work. A lot of these things, it does not take you long to learn how, you know, it doesn't take you very long to figure out whether this is going to be something you want to do or not. And when I say that, the moment you upload a product, uh, upload a model to them, it comes up and says, okay, it's going to cost this much to do. Particularly, shape, you know, Shapeways, it just comes up and it says, okay, it's going to be $10.32 within minutes. I mean, or a minute. I mean, that's how that's how fast it is, you know. So you, you upload the thing. Once you get all the work done to make it uploadable, Upload it, and they'll tell you immediately, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. Yes, we can do it, and this is how much it will cost. What happens, like with this last product I did, I sent it up, and initially they said, oh, yes, it'll print. But then they run it through another check before they actually print it, and that's a lot of times when the thing will fail. They'll say the initial check is okay, it's a good model, but then when it actually is hitting the machine, they'll say, oh, nope, doesn't work. And that's what can be frustrating because that can take, you know, three, four or five days before that occurs. So, which can be a little frustrating. So there's a lot of turnaround. That's the difference. With Shapeways, you have a long turnaround time, but it's inexpensive. If you have your own machine, you know, you, you print out, the, you, you, you make your model, you print it out, you walk away, you, you know, within six hours. It took 11 hours to do that O-scale boxcar end. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but he did it at the highest resolution possible. So, but I mean, you know, all the ri- you know, I put huck bolts in it. Huck bolts are there. All the rivets I put in it, rivets are there. And there, there are everything is there. You know, everything that I model into it is there, invisible. So amazing. Oh yeah, but yeah, and the the thing that kills me, you know, this is these, you know, this isn't resin. When I say resin, you know, you think of a resin boxcar kit, and they're pretty stout. This is not that. It's it's a much more brittle product. The the printing process, the Form One machine that he has, is you have to design in a. Uh, they, they it comes with a program that allows you to design the support mechanism for the the part because that uh, that's beyond the spoke of the spoke scope of this conversation. But uh, he had to clean that off and was going to send it to me. And in the process of being overly excited about it, he snapped the part in half. Oh. That took him 11 hours to print. Not good. No, not good. So he had to print up another one and send it to me. But it's beautiful. Uh, so, you know, there's, thing, there's things you got to, you know, like one of the one of the materials, like I've designed a bolster to take Atlas O-scale trucks. I model in N-scale, but is, right now I'm working in Proto 48. And one of the issues with Proto 48 is Atlas O makes roller-bearing trucks. But when you put in Proto 48 wheel sets into it, because they make the trucks wide enough to accept three rail wheels, 
the the truck side frames are so wide when you put the the scale wheels in it they look ridiculous yeah. so i designed a bolster in in sketchup that is an exact drop in part for the atlas part that you take out and then you just put in this plastic part in and it pulls the side frames in so you can put in the the wheel sets and it looks good it costs 5 bucks yeah i think it's like 5 or seven dollars or something to do to a, a pair of trucks and uh, that material you could take a hammer to it and whack it with a hammer it won't hurt it the material that you're doing tie plates in is very brittle it's not not that strong so in, a, in, in the application of using it for a tie plate is fine because it's not going to be under any tension it's not going to you know it's not going to be forced to do anything it's just sitting under a rail and you're spiking through it, you know. So in that application, it works great. But or it, as a master that you're going to cast resin or brass from, works great. You know, it's not the panacea to fix everything. You know, because it's not going to be an injection molded. It's not going to have the same strength as a, as an injection molded part. And anything you do in shapeways, you're never going to be able to print out grab irons and shapeways. Ain't going to happen. It might happen in G-Scale, but it certainly isn't going to happen in HOO or anything else. So these are things you need to understand. So different printing processes will do it. But then again, at $20,000 for the machine as opposed to $2,000 for the machine. So things to think about. One's a capital expenditure and the other one is a Christmas present. When you're looking at when I mean, and it was the 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 machine at Staples was thirteen hundred bucks. They had a three D scanner for four hundred bucks. What's a three D? You scan put something in the there? scanner and it scans it and it turns it into a three D model that you can print without actually having to draw it. It draws it 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 renders it itself. As a matter of fact, Rapido, I believe, used that technology, but on a larger, far larger scale, they used that technology to get the nose contours right on the new FPA four. They did a digital scan of an FPA-4 so that they could get the nose right. Well, that had to be a big machine. I, I don't know how big it is. I, I think it, it's just a different method of applying the technology. You know, that's all. It's not that the machine is – I mean, it's bigger, obviously, but not – it's not like the size of a truck. You know, it's, it's, it's a different method of applying the technology, and I have no idea how they did it. Uh, I just understand that that's how they did it. Okay. I think we've seen that in science fiction where the laser beam scans over a big object because there's fixed points of reference and the reflections and stuff help digitize and quantify. Okay. Yeah, yeah I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Kind of like an MRI for a locomotive. I tell you what, all my shape ways, questions and concerns have been addressed. Okay, well, that's good. That's certainly less of a, far more coherent than the conversation me and uh, Chris were having. Yes. It was a good good conversation and excellent information, but it was like, oh, check a look, check, take a look at this link. Oh, look at this. <laughs> oh, this is so cool. Take a look at this, Paul. That's right. Why don't you put a couple links up on the uh, blog, uh, like the locomotive or so forth? Just a simple quick post. Uh, if I get around to it, okay. Okay, I'll, or maybe, maybe I'll go on maybe, you'll go down, maybe you can go and do it, because it would even be better for you to do it, because you'll have to find it, and then you can explain how you found it. I can testify to how easy it is. To, all right, I can, I can accept that challenge. I can accept that challenge. Hey, interestingly enough, not to prolong this, because whereas uh, your dogs were... Playing in the background, my wife's dogs are staring at me like, "Do you understand it's dinner time?" Right. See, I made the I I was smart enough to feed them before getting on the podcast. <laughs> One of the guys in the store, Bruce, uh, recently got two of the 
Paragon centipedes. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Centipede uh-huh. locomotives. Yep. So he bought the uh, demonstrator paint job because that's the the general era he models. So he said, go ahead and put them on the uh, railroad back there. So I stopped building trees and took them back. Interesting. I mean, the bodies are beautifully done. A couple things. Out of the box, when you buy an AA set, they are already configured so that one will run, uh, run in reverse. You don't have the con system. You don't have to go into CV29 or any of that kind of stuff and configure it. Uh, you just put them on a test track and put it in forward, and you find out who's, you know, going to be the lead unit and who's going to be the trailing. Really neat. Two speakers in each one, up by the cab and then one in the back. And they're wired out of phase. Because when I fired one up, I went, holy cow, I'm getting that, you know, discordant, out-of-phase sound, almost stereo, if you will, which was, uh, and I know nothing about baby or centipedes, so I don't know whether they were single prime mover or not. I think they were two prime movers. But very impressive locomotive, and like the real railroads, the real prototypes, you know, the frames are articulated. Because we've got 56-inch uh, radius on the on the signature piece, as Mike Rose would say, curve. And these things still, they overhang more than my Allegheny does <laughs> going around that. I mean, it's a long locomotive. Holy cow. But beautiful. Just pass it on for anybody who likes uh, centipedes. Who had them? Seaboard Airline in Pennsylvania by, and uh, Mexican? Yes. NDM? Yep, I think so. Okay, not for everyone, but if it's your thing, it's a beautiful locomotive. All right, James, well, I'm going to go feed the dogs. You can go uh, play with Titus, and, uh, you know, Titus's name sticks in my mind, but I can never remember the other doggies' name. Harrison. Harrison. I should think of that because uh, there was a president. That's even better. That, that's who's named after, Harrison Ford. <laughs> and he's looking at me. Now, and just, you know, just for a case in point, I just uploaded my model to iMaterialize, and they've come back with um, $16.90 to do it. And this is a, and I, I mean, I may try them just for the sake of trying it. Now, which model is this? This is uh, a set of guardrails. Uh, they're nine-foot-long guardrails. Highway guardrails or uh, track guardrails? Track guard, uh, the turnout guardrails. Uh, hang on just a minute. And let me see if I can get one of these things up to you and send you a picture. And I will. Ooh, sweet. And then, um, then at least you know I can, uh, what I'm talking about. So, SketchUp 8 is what i got to do. Yeah. Uh, let me just check to see whether I've actually made a picture of them already. That would save me the aggravation doing it again. Because unfortunately, to have this headset plugged into this computer, I have my mouse disconnected so i'm stuck with using this full touchpad thing <laughs> yeah i keep mine turned off <laughs> despise yeah when my computer crashed uh on my big computer my fancy one i uh i had it turned off i had the touchpad turned off because what happens is when i'm typing on the uh the laptop your thumb every once will every once in a while will graze it and then it moves your cursor to someplace else in the text box <laughs> yeah. And um, so 
What's good for people to know here in the high-tech world of uh, broadcast and podcast that uh, we all suffer from the same afflictions yes. of our computers? Uh-huh. And um, I had it turned off, and then I had a hard drive crash, and that was one of those settings that came up when you first booted the computer. Yeah. It's like, oh, do you want to turn this off? Yes, I do want to turn it off. And so now I can't find it. I cannot find the setting to turn the touchpad off, and it's driving me crazy. But that's a short trip, relatively. Uh, what can I do two? I'll send you one. I'm sending you a file now in the chat. Okay, Doc. I'll see it as we... There it is. Nine foot uh, 2F JPEG. All right. Sweet Marie. Two of them, even. Still coming in. Hi, Jimmy. Well, I'll wait till you take a look at it. So. All right, buddy. Uh, we got we got time. It's you know this makes fascinating radio. So, uh, um, so that's cool. The uh, so the uh, the engines came in and out of phase. That's pretty neat. That's that, that's yeah. neat what you can do with the two. Um... Now, was that a single decoder or one decoder? I did. I missed that part. Sorry. You know, I didn't take the body ah. off. So okay. I don't know. It's a QSI. Uh-huh. Likewise, when I was doing some of my own E8s, and they have two uh, higher base output speakers in it, one right behind the cab and then one back by the uh, rear fans. And I sat there and played with it and switched the leads around to pick up that out of phase. Uh, phase. And I thought, boy, this sounds good. But I was concerned because I'm firing up, and there's only about six inches in between. Yep. And my concern there was that the out-of-phase sound would impact the uh, sound pressure level. Mm-hmm. So I went back to normal, but uh, after hearing those today, because they were about the same length, I may try it on mine and then run it and see. Because it, it really brings out that, hey, this thing has two prime movers in it. Right. Because as the engines lug up, it's, you can perceive that the lugging on the one speaker is, is slightly different from the lugging on the right. other. So that's cool. Mm. Very cool. Still having trouble downloading those, huh? I didn't think they were that big. The one is still going. How big does it say it is? Uh, 99 uh, kilobytes on one and 81 on the other. Interesting. I'm wondering why it's well, but here on this end, I've been concerned about the speed of my cable company's oh. uh, internet connection. Or I mean, we pay for the premium right. buzz uh, light speed, and it at sometimes is just like I've had dial-up connections ten years ago that were this fast. Right. So I think on the, these files, even though they're not huge, it is. Yeah, it won't let me open them up. Not uh, not complete. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I uploaded those movies off my iPhone quicker than than these are coming over Cox. So. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, this is um, Verizon. I, you know, I'm doing it over Wi-Fi. I'm not even connected directly. So, well, and the other thing is, yeah, run I'm Skype. five feet away from the Wi-Fi in here. But. Yeah, and you're and you're doing Skype at the same time. So, and then I think the iPhone and the iPad are sitting in there on cruise control, so they may be sucking up bandwidth. Sucking up bandwidth. Yeah, so. Yeah, sucking up. Oh uh, man, but uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, definitely something to look out uh, out for, and uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, it got me back to I, you know, Mike Rose, because I, I think it may be in Model Road Hobbyist. I, you know, where he's offering a um, Lehigh Valley concrete foam booth that I designed. It allows you to do small runs of products that are not really commercially viable. 
as a, you know, it's not like a rail, uh, Pullman standard rail box boxcar in HO scale, which is everybody needs them. You know, if you're modeling the modern era, you need Pullman standard boxcars by the, you know, tens. Anyway, you're going to buy them. It's not like that. It's like, you know, 50 modelers need two. So you'll sell a couple hundred in the, you know, forever. But it's nice that if anybody ever comes to and say, hey, do you by any chance have one of those? Yes, and now I've got to take back everything I said about Cox because it was wanting me to accept them. Oh. But there was no dialogue block opening up. Ah. It's only when I clicked on it, it said, this may contain a virus. Do you want to accept it? Ah. So I said, yeah. I know where Jim lives. That's right. I'll, I'll trust him. Yep, there we go. They're both in. All right. Oh, nice looking. Good detail. I like the, the bolt detail. Yep. The only thing I didn't do, you know, I didn't get into, if you if you, you can't zoom in on it, but I didn't put in the threads because... Oh, on the, uh, on the bolts? bolts because okay. at that resolution, they're not going to print anyway. So... Yeah. Oh, but that is really good looking. You have the other one which shows you the other side. Yeah, the um yeah, you got the other side. So yeah, there's a those those little blocks, you know, with the folded over tabs and everything. And yeah, if you could see the underside, the underside actually has the rivet where those bolts are coming through because those they're not they're not hex head bolts, they're rivets. Okay. So it's actually got the rivets on the underside, which no one will ever see. I figured, what the heck? I'm here, I'll put them in anyway. Why not? You're just that type of guy. Yeah, kind of, because it would aggravate. You know, and it, probably it's one of those things people will file off by accident, trying to get rid of the, the other sprue. They, these things come through. It's not like, you know, when you get things injection molded where you get a lot of flash or anything. There's really not a lot of – you get the sprue where things are connected to one another, but you don't, there's no flash to these, really. There's, sometimes you have to do a little bit of cleanup, but uh, these should print fairly well. Yeah, these these failed. Uh, it's just slightly aggravating. I'm going to print it anyway. I may try it with with iMaterialize to see whether they'll just print them and they'll be any better. So we'll see what happens. Well, I think we've covered it. Okay.